I'm a killer. A murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. Did you see that, Zack? Claire is a crisp spring morning. Welcome to yet another episode of Screaming Through the Ages. I am your host, Trey Whetstone, here as always, coming from Columbus, Ohio. And this is going to be a hybrid episode, much like the dog in Man's Best Friend. So in this one, I didn't want to go too long in between the horror history stuff. I know we just did the 1985 episode with Nathan and Raul, And I didn't want to go an entire month over a month. I mean, it would have been like almost two months by the time we get back to Hitchcock. So I wanted to get that here and mix in horror with regular stuff. Now, this is going to be a huge mixture and is going to be very film heavy. I know usually these Screaming Chronicle episodes have had a lot of games and anime and all that kind of stuff. And there is that in here, but just be forewarned, there's going to be a lot of movie talk in this episode. So as far as what you can look forward to, I am continuing Alfred Hitchcock, and I'll be reviewing three of his films in between Rear Window and Vertigo, and giving the history and background of what was going on at that time. I've also got a horror history segment for the Dawn of the Dead anniversary. And I'm going to be talking about the background on that, as well as my feelings about how that influenced the industry. I've got a smattering of many reviews, including a new segment debuting called Screaming Off the Shelf, where I'm going to start reviewing random movies on my shelves that I've never watched. And this time I'll be taking one of the westerns from the Vengeance Trails set that Arrow put out. I will also be starting a little history segment you know, and something you will get every episode of the Screaming Chronicles uh, going forward until I make it through, and that is the filmography of Alex de la Iglesia. And I'll be starting with Mutant Action or Action Mutante. And here shortly, I will be running into a Screaming Around the World segment with featuring the crazy Indonesian film, the Indonesian horror film, Lady Terminator. I'll also be continuing my Mecha sci-fi ranking series with Mobile Suit Gundam, the 8th MS team. And, of course, continuing on with anime, my uh, fall 2022 anime season review. And, yeah, there might be some other surprises in here, but that's pretty much what's on the docket. Let's get started. I want to get started with this Screaming Around the World review 
of Lady Terminator. Screaming Through the Ages presents Screaming Around the World. Susie, do you know anything about witches? Sent me twins of evil. When I was little, my father was famous. He was the greatest samurai in the empire. And he was the shogun's decapitator. They will make cemeteries their cathedrals. And the cities will be your tombs. Some people, on the seventh night after their death, come back to life. Okay, so Lady Terminator is a 1989 film directed by H. J- Jalil. I don't, I don't know. I can't pronounce that. I am butchering that name, but look it up. It is the same guy who directed Mystics in Bali. And, you know, coincidentally, my two least favorite Indonesian horror films so far. Not that either one is terrible, but uh, we can get into that later. I love the tagline with this. She mates, then she terminates. And the synopsis reads, the spirit of an ancient evil queen possesses the body of a young anthropological student who then goes on a murderous rampage. And I hate to be a little bit down for the second time in a row in this Screaming Around the World segment. But I'm going to have to say Lady Terminator was, I know a lot of people love it out there, and I absolutely see why. I think it is a really good, bad movie. That unfortunately is not my thing. And while I think there are still highlights, I think the negatives slightly outweigh the positives for this with this one for me. Um, but I'll get into that. Uh, be forewarned, I might get into some vague spoilers here and there for this one. If you, I don't think it's anything that'll ruin the plot. I don't really think you need to know much of the plot for Lady Terminator. I'm not going to spoil the ending, but there are a couple of things later on that I'll discuss that I just need to get into. But essentially, we open up with this cold open, and it has this queen and she's on like her hundredth can't remember if it's the hundredth or the hundredth and first hundred and first uh, husband. And we see her killing her previous husband while they're having sex. And then a new guy comes in and kind of steals her life force and seals her away. And that's really where we open. And I love that they're incorporating this legend of queen of the South sea. Yeah. And I think that's the note that I want to say here is I think this movie is at its best when it's embracing the mysticism and the magical elements of it. And I've got to say, we've got the tagline of she mates, then she terminates. And I love that tagline. The problem is is it only applies to a small subsection of the movie, I feel like. We definitely have that in the opening that I just described. And we have that a little bit later on um, in bits and pieces. But This almost feels like two different movies sometimes. We have weird magical stuff going on. 
and then we just have a complete and you know i hate to use the term ripoff but this is an absolute ripoff of terminator and not just terminator i'll get to that in a moment but it's almost like it's fighting with itself it's almost like they had the idea to make a movie off of this legend and seemingly closer to something like mystics and bali or the older Indonesian horror films as well, like uh, Satan's Slave and Queen of Black Magic. But they almost thought, oh, well, we'll probably get some more box office stuff and all this if we do a Terminator ripoff as well. And I think that's my main issue with it, is it just doesn't know what it wants to be. And I love the the scenes that follow the tagline, she mates and then she terminates. I think those are a lot of fun and a lot more menacing and more horror-like. And then when we get to the Terminator stuff, it's much more like just an action horror movie, and I didn't connect with that part of it as much. I really like our leading lady here, not the one that plays the Terminator or the Queen character, but the one that is um, opposite of Max, who is our police character in this one. And she has a great scene in a music. It's a musical scene in a club where she's singing, and I love that scene. I think that's a pretty cool song, too. But I like, I really do like their their relationship's weird. I think that's one of the highlights for me is the way those two interact with each other and as they go through. There, of course, is the obligatory love scene between the two, and I, I think that's pretty well done, honestly, but yeah, another, this is just so weird. I want to talk about the Terminator stuff. Because in that club, the music scene that I had mentioned earlier, the character yells out, come with me if you want to live, when this lady Terminator gets to the club and starts shooting the place up. But that wouldn't be the end of it. That would be probably the end of the um, the Terminator lines. Uh, you do get later on where her, you know, one side of her face around her eye gets beaten up and disfigured pretty bad and that uh, seems to line up with something else but then you get later on and I think this is a mistranslation I I think it has to be because they say the line if it bleeds it dies and of course that's not necessarily the line from Predator but it's pretty close and I thought that was too much to be a coincidence and then later on when Max's buddies come over from America in their helicopter, and they get out, all four of them put their arms, hands and arms together in the middle, just like that scene with Carl Weathers and Arnold in um, Predator, and it does like close up and a <laughs> on that, and a very big emphasis on that, so I was like, yeah, this is also ripping off Predator, so uh, that's cool, but yeah, I do love the lore, and there are really cool moments of magic usage, and there's one character in, in particular who's like a shaman or a spiritual character. And I like that guy as well. And the other problem is it just seems like they're throwing things at the wall with this movie is, you know, one time she's suddenly shooting lasers out of her eyes or she's um, getting these new powers. I, it's crazy. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And oh, man, it's <laughs> I really wanted to like this one more. And I, I don't hate it. I think this movie is solid and I think it's definitely there for people who like so bad it's good stuff I think you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of this I think if you watch it with some friends you could 
get into it and maybe make fun of the film and get into it that way. But honestly, other than that, I don't have a ton of stuff to say on it or any other recommendations. Yeah, I do like some of the characters. Most of the characters are just throwaway. The effects and violence are pretty basic and straightforward, whether it's with a knife or with a gun, you're not going to get much. There's one where she kind of it goes a little overboard on a character. But other than that, it's just standard action movie stuff mixed in with some uh, standard kills in the more um, mystical elements of it. But my biggest regret here is there there seems to be a lot of potential with this one. I think I mean, I'd love to see a remake where they don't just try to rip off Terminator, but try to work that in to the mysticism and magic and all that and focus more on that stuff as well. I think they could do a good job. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Joko Anwar is isn't working on something like that because he's already been involved on remakes of Satan's Slave and the Queen of Black Magic. So I don't know. I'd rather see him do something original like he did with Impedagore, but I wouldn't be opposed to him writing a treatment for uh, New Lady Terminator. But I would come in around the same as I am on Mystics in Bali. It does have that charm, that Indonesian charm. It's almost like Indonesia, India, those kind of movies in this time. Even Japan had some of the same energy, but they have that kind of charm to them from this time period. And I think this has a little bit of that. It just kind of takes the Terminator stuff too far. So... I think I would still come in around a six on this one. There's some good elements of it, and I do like parts of it for sure, but it's just it's just too much of that uh, Terminator ripoff for it to truly be something that I love or would uh, urge you to go run out and see. And besides, I had to watch this one on archive.org, which is a perfectly legal site um, you can go and check out. But the sound was pretty low on it. It wasn't the best quality. Mondo Macabro has a at least a DVD, probably a Blu-ray of this as well. So if you're really into it, I know I know um, Dave Becker, Dr. Shock is into this one, and I think Donna Nelly is as well. But you can go check out this crazy movie for yourself if you want, either by buying the Mondo Macabro release or going over to like archive.org and watching this thing with um, subtitles. You can find it on YouTube. But much like other international films on YouTube, you're not going to have subs. So, but that is my review of Lady Terminator. Hopefully next time, I think I'm going to pick a more sure bet because House I had some doubts about going into and Lady Terminator was a crapshoot. I just know I liked the other Indonesian horror stuff I've seen. I think next time I might go with more of a sure bet and try to, or at least as sure of a bet can be and try to get some more positivity on this segment. But hey, I didn't dislike either of those movies. They are definitely weird and off-kilter, and I think they both have a lot of the same stuff in common. But uh, that is my quick little review of Lady Terminator, and now I'm going to go ahead and move into the next part of the episode.
Okay, in this segment, I am back to review another mecha sci-fi anime, and this is a mecha one, and this is coming off following up the original one that I did on Super Dimensional Fortress Macross, and this time, you know, that time I reviewed kind of a classic from the 80s, this time I'm going to review a classic from the 90s. So if there was one thing that was huge in the 90s in America, it was, or at least late 90s, was Gundam. I mean, Toonami had introduced the world to Gundam Wing and G Gundam, but there was also another Gundam that came out around the time that was much shorter, much smaller scale, and that is Mobile Suit Gundam, the 8th MS Team. Now, I'm a huge Gundam fan, and 8th MS Team is something a little different. You know, I'm not someone who grew up with the Universal Century, which is the main timeline of Gundam, or at least the original Gundam and Zeta Gundam and all that kind of stuff, being as I grew up with Gundam Wing and G Gundam, and then even something like Gundam Seed. But that doesn't mean I don't like the Universal Century timeline, and 8th MS Team really does something special and different. This one actually released as an OVA, which is just an original video animation, uh, just meaning it came out in several different parts and was released straight to video instead of going through TV or anything like that. And it released between, it was 12 episodes uh, that released between 1996 and 1999. But the synopsis is, War between the Earth Federation and Xeon has ground to a bloody standstill, and both sides eagerly seek a quick resolution. Among these is Ensign Shiro Amada, a young mobile suit pilot for the Federation assigned to the 8th Mobile Suit Division in the heart of the Vietnamese jungle. The members of his team include Karen, a hot-headed pilot and part-time mechanic, Sanders, the Reaper, a pilot with a reputation for getting the people in his unit killed, Elador, an aspiring musician, flirt, and communications officer for the team, and Mikkel, the love-struck driver for the team's command vehicle. As the gravity of war bears down on their shoulders, they must struggle to keep their sanity amidst a chaotic battlefield that continually tests their wit, focus, and resolve. And I love for the uh, for the tags in this one. It says um, Vietnam, <laughs> which is which is crazy. So this is, you know, I talked about it last time. This is a real robot type anime. Um, There are people piloting these robots, and this is much more grounded than a lot of the other Gundam stuff, and that's not just because it's set on Earth. And what the difference is, is, you know, in the original Mobile Suit Gundam, you have Amuro Ray, and he's on white base with the commanding officer Bright Noah, and they're going out in this Gundam model RX-78. And the RX-78 is iconic, it's the very first Gundam, but this is clearly a super suit. And you know, you kind of get to see that at the near the beginning of the breakout of the One Year War in, if you look at the timeline, the Universal Century 0079. So that is the year, year 79 in the Universal Century. And maybe some point I'll go through the timeline of Gundam and all that, but it gets to be a real head-scratcher at points, so maybe not. But anyway, so you've got that battle out in space and on Earth and all across the place. They're just this kind of super unit and with extraordinary circumstances, you know, the typical thing that you'll see in mecha anime. 
and something that you also see in something like Macross. But in 8th MS Team, we go down to the Earth's surface in Vietnam, and we get to see the war as told from like these foot soldiers, from the people on the ground fighting these battles. And, you know, they're in Vietnam. They're using very RX-like looking things. I think their RX-79 is the model of these ones, and there's different versions of them. But you have Shiro piloting one, you have Karen piloting one, and you have Sanders piloting one. And then you have uh, Mikkel and Elidor in the, it's their communications tank. Like they do all the communicating and radar and tracking and stuff. And we just get to see them in this jungle setting, which is not something you see all the time in Gundam. I know we saw a lot of, uh, you know, they were journeying to Jaburo in the original Mobile Suit Gundam. They went through the desert kind of lands and all this other territory. But you not only have the Zeon fighting the Earth Federation, which are the two factions in the original timeline of Gundam. Zeon is in space and have started a war with with the Earth Federation, which is, you know, the Earth government and their military. And neither side is good or bad. Neither one are painted completely good or completely bad. Although a lot of times Zeon is treated as a more of a dictatorship type thing that definitely has a lot of strong bloodlines and families in it. And anyway, I'm getting a little off track here with Gundam. Um, I guess if you want to <laughs> run down of Gundam, you'll have to go watch something else because I'm I'm focusing on this story in particular. And this is one that I think if you've never seen Gundam at all and are interested, I think you could start with this because it is just taking a very unrelated group of people. It's very short. It's to the point. And you really just get to see how the daily lives of these soldiers are. You know, you have Sanders, who is considered the Reaper with all of his teams that he served on. They've been completely wiped out, but he survives every time. Then you have Karen, who is, let me tell you, the art style of this is, it screams 90s anime, and Karen screams strong 90s woman anime protagonist or character. She is absolutely in that mold. And Elidor, I think, fits a lot of stereotypes, too, in here. I think they this is a very much this is very much a 90s anime, although it's very different in a lot of ways from something like Gundam Wing or G Gundam. I don't think there's a lot of similarities in the art style. I think it is a little unique from those. And we have several iconic scenes in this that. If you grew up in the 90s watching anime, you probably know them even if you haven't seen it. Especially one with a Gundam laying on the ground is, I think, a very iconic one. But yeah, these guys are just, it's almost like they're a detached platoon in this conflict because they're just going through, you know, they're completing their missions as their orders are given. Now it does escalate for sure near the end, and I'm definitely leaving out a character. Um, Ensign Shiromata, who is the commander of this ragtag group, when he's first in space and on his way to Earth to take command of this unit, he goes out to save a pilot, who is Sanders, and gets himself stranded on a ship with a Xeon pilot. And this Xeon pilot was piloting this, I guess this experimental Gundam or this 
not a Gundam, but this experimental Xeon suit that they're testing. And she's not a new type or anything like that. She doesn't have, it seems like, special reflexes or powers. And I don't think anyone in this anime does. They're just all normal characters, which is another thing that's really cool about it. But they get stranded on this ship, and they kind of form a little bit of a bond. Um, and her name is Ina. And even though they're on opposing sides of the war and it doesn't start out very friendly, they do come to understand each other to an extent. And those are the two storylines you're following in this. You're following Shiro's group in the jungle fighting the war, and you're following Ina and her brother and all these other characters as they go through doing Xeon things and, and testing these mobile suits and trying to take down the Earth Federation. I don't want to get too much more into any plot details. I will say the last episode of this is very different. It's very much like an epilogue. And I had forgot about this until I saw the very beginning of it. And then I remembered because it's been several years since I've seen this. And that last episode is a doozy. I mean, the directions it goes in... It's pretty cool and I think very unique from a Gundam story. I love it. I love how open-ended it is and all of that, but I'm not going to get into too many spoilers. I will say, like I said, it starts out very slow and methodical, just going through the daily lives. It does ramp up. If you're worried about that, it does ramp up at some point. I think the best thing about this series are just the characters and how in a short amount of time they've been able to introduce you to who these characters are, what they like, what they don't like, what their temperaments are like. That's very cool in that sense. And they do an excellent job with that. I also like the mobile suit designs. You know, we've got the RX-79s, like I've uh, stated before, and we've also have, um, and it's cool to see that they've kind of mobilized these Gundam-like suits here later in the war, and this is later in the war because by the time it ends, the war is the one year war is over. But and then on the um, Zeon side, you have your standard Zaku's and you've got some I think you've got some goofs at some point, but you've got all these standard kind of foot soldiers in these units. You're not going to have a red comet. You're not going to have anything like that. Any super suits. You've just got standard. You know, most of the time it's Zaku versus these RX-79 types, and you do get a couple of other special suits, but you also have gorillas. Being in Vietnam, you have all these gorillas who are living in this village and are fighting back against really both sides. And the story that goes on with that and Kiki, who is the kind of daughter, the leader of these gorillas, it, there's just so many different plot lines and threads, but it keeps it all grounded. There's an especially good story with some Xeon uh, pilots who wander into this village of the gorillas and I really like where that one goes and how that ends and it's a very effective episode at telling a little contained story within this one usually you're not going to see large-scale battles near the end you get a bigger battle than normal that's that was one thing I guess that I think it could have improved on I think there's two things this one could have improved on one is the fact that there aren't any large scale battles. I wanted to see, you know, kind of a full mobilized assault from one side or the other, them just going at each other. 
And we don't get to see that here. We get to see a lot of times, a lot of times it's a single mobile suit against three others or three on three or something like that. We don't see very much large scale. The other thing is I wish it was a little longer. I feel like I would have liked to see, you know, I feel like they rushed towards the conclusion a lot. And I, this is a problem a lot of times with 12 or 13 episode anime and that's it is sometimes they rush and they don't really, you don't really get to see the full picture. And while we're not seeing like this giant space opera, like we normally do with Gundam where you have, you know, dozens of moving people and pieces that you're keeping an eye on and it is contained. I still think we could have used with a little more time, but those are minor gripes. This show definitely takes Gundam puts it on a smaller scale and still keeps it interesting. It also has a very, you know, like most Gundam, there's a huge anti-war narrative running throughout this one. I think 8th MS team, and I hope I'm doing a good enough job of describing this and what it's about, um, but I think 8th MS team is really a classic of anime and a classic of Gundam. Now, I'm a huge Gundam fan, and I like a lot of Gundam, so this probably wouldn't be in my top five of Gundam series, but you have to understand how much I enjoy Gundam as a whole. And I'd love to do more of these. It's just kind of harder since they are like, you know, 50 episode series for the most part. But 8th MS team is definitely something where I think this is going to capture or I think it captured a much more passive audience when it comes to Gundam. Um, you don't have to know a lot of the stuff that's going on. You don't have to know anything else that's going on because it gives it to you right here. And I love the more grunt military focused nature of it. Like I've said, you know, from the opening of the anime where you just see a box, like a crate full of ammo to how at beginning of each episode, it's like episode this and it has in big block letters the name of the episode and it feels like a mission briefing almost. There's just so many little touches. And like I said, all the characters, Sanders and Karen and Elidore, Mikkel, they all go through changes in this short amount of time, especially Shiro too. I love how you get to see those characters grow, even if I wanted more time with them. So that's going to be my wrap up for my talk on 8th MS team. Um, I could probably sit here and talk a lot more about specifics and the plot and stuff, but I don't want to ruin or spoil anything. But this is one, if you're into anime and you're into action anime and you have any interest in, you know, war stories and robots fighting it at all, you should check this one out. It's a quick watch. You don't need to know what else is going on in the war or anything like that. Um, it does a good job of catching you up to speed or getting you up to speed. And yeah, it's a classic anime that I think a lot of people like, but you, the problem is, is a lot of these mecha, it's just a forgotten art form. We don't get a ton of mecha shows anymore. And the 90s were definitely a time when it was still booming. You know, the 80s, 90s, got a ton of these, 70s as well. So it's just a throwback to a, a bygone era. And I think if you're into that art style, you're definitely going to dig it. Now I have to rank this thing against right now, which is the only other one. Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. 
I would say that this one would go above Macross in the listing. So we've only got two of these, but as I continue, I will keep building the list and stacking these up. But right now, the ranking is Mobile Suit Gundam, the 8th MS team, and then Super Dimensional Fortress Macross at number two. Let me know if you end up checking this one out if you've never seen it or what you think of it if you have seen it. Um, as I get more of these thrown into the pool, I will definitely start taking, or I definitely will start asking you to rank these or how you would rank them as well. But that's going to be it for now, and I'll go ahead and keep the show moving along and move on to the next segment. Good evening. Do you believe in ghosts? Of course not. I knew you didn't. Noise is the mortal enemy of good motion picture making and television broadcasting. That is why I hired this particular house. It is deathly quiet. Most of the time. And its reputation for being haunted keeps away the curious. The shifting of scenery also seems to be better here. The human element has been removed. So, if you will just lean back and relax, I'll tell you a little ghost story. Please don't hesitate to turn out your lights. I'm sure the warm glow from the picture tube will be sufficient to melt all your fears of the dark. But before we view with alarm, allow us to point with pride. Okay, so on this segment, I'm going to be continuing my history of Alfred Hitchcock. And on this particular one, we're going to pick up where we left off after Rear Window released and move through the next set of films up unto Vertigo. So I won't be covering Vertigo on this episode, but that will be up next. So picking up on the history, uh, near the beginning of 1954, before Rear Window was completed, Hitchcock moved on to a new project. Paramount had purchased the rights to the novel To Catch a Thief two years earlier and suggested he move in that direction. The novel is set in France and follows a cat burglar who tries to catch another thief who is ripping off his style. Hitch may have been persuaded to take the assignment due to the amount of intensive studio work he had to do in Rear Window, so he might have wanted to go on and do some location shooting just to get out of the studio. John Michael Hayes was back to write, and Hitch used studio money to send him and his wife to France to research when he learned that he had never been there before. Hayes and Hitchcock both appreciated the partnership that they had and thought Hayes' character work was what made up for Hitchcock's inability to develop characters. Filming began near the end of May, and they were worried about rain throughout the entire production. It was mostly filmed in the Paramount Studios lot, but they did do some on-location filming in the Alps Maritime in southeastern France. Hitchcock wasn't happy with Cary Grant's contract on this one, 
He was able to leave the set every day promptly at 6, and would make a percentage on the film before anything was paid out to the director. He was also very demanding. So I'm kind of with Hitch here. I don't, I think that's a pretty cushy contract. I mean, he makes money on this film before the director sees a dime of it. And that's the kind of star Grant was at the time that he could command that. Grant told one actor in the film that Hitchcock both hated and liked him. Hitchcock even threatened to tell Grant off once and for all when filming ended, but of course he never did. He claimed he didn't because he may need him for another movie. Grace Kelly's latest affair also caused some issues on the set as her new lover came to every shoot. Grant recalls in a scene when he was supposed to grab Kelly's wrist, Hitchcock wasn't satisfied with it and ordered them to do it again and again until it felt real. Grant caught a glimpse of Kelly massaging her wrist and wincing in a corner off the set in between takes. So yeah, we've covered this kind of stuff before where Hitchcock was kind of cruel to some of the women that were on his or in his films. This would be the last time that Hitchcock would team up with Grace Kelly, though. Although Hitch had wanted a change of pace after Rear Window, he did get tired of filming on location and even finished some scenes back on set in L.A. that were supposed to be filmed on location. Filming finished three weeks late in September of 54. To Catch a Thief was the first film Hitch made that used the VistaVision widescreen process, He would go on to use it in four more films after this, and whenever he does use it, it is proudly displayed in front of that Paramount logo. To Catch a Thief released in Los Angeles on August 3rd of 1955. Critics at the time were mixed due to the lack of suspense in the film. Some compared it to Hitchcock's earlier films. Grace Kelly was a pretty big star by the time of release, though, and the film did pretty well due to that. Robert Burks ended up winning an Academy Award for Best Cinematography for his work on the film. To Catch a Thief is the only remaining Hitchcock film that was released and is still owned by Paramount. Hitchcock bought the others in the 1960s, and their rights sit with Universal today, which is why if you get that universal box set you're not going to see to catch a thief in there but you will have a lot of the other ones made around this time okay so before i move on i'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about to catch a thief so this was released in 1955 ran for 106 minutes the tagline is wanted by the police in all the luxury spots of europe a catch for any woman The synopsis reads, to prevent being accused of the crime, an ex-burglar must catch a thief who's been copying his style. Okay, so let's get this out of the way, and I've probably talked about this before. I am not a Cary Grant fan, and yeah, I didn't like him at all in this movie. Um, I never really like him in any of the movies I've seen him in. Uh, He's not my cup of tea. I don't I don't like the guy. I don't like his acting. I think he comes off as kind of smarmy and um, egotistical and kind of self-centered. Yeah, that's just my take on Cary Grant. So anything he's in is automatically going to get docked a little bit. I shouldn't say I don't like the guy. I just don't like his acting and the characters that he plays. But on the other hand, 
Grace Kelly is phenomenal in this movie. I think she is incredible. She's been she's so good in the three Hitchcock movies here with uh, Dial M for Murder and Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. She's really good in all three of those. And then we also have John Williams back from Dial M for Murder, and he plays a pretty good character in this as well. I think all the side characters and everything around it are really solid. I was intrigued, though, and I really liked the premise going in that it's about this burglar trying to clear his name because, yes, he was a burglar at one time and a master thief, but he's not anymore. And while I'm talking bad about Cary Grant, I do think there are moments where he, you know, does pretty well. I mean, there's some pretty good moments between him and Grace Kelly, I think, and the character that plays Grace Kelly's mom as well in this. And I think the way that the story kind of unfolds that way with those three characters, I really do like that part. There's also a pretty awkward scene that takes place in a uh, swimming location that I didn't necessarily like at all, and there's a couple of those throughout the movie. There's also a lot of car chases, a lot of action, a lot of that kind of stuff. So I can definitely see where there's less suspense. And honestly, this is much less of a thriller than I thought it was going to be. I think there's probably one scene that could be considered like thriller horror type stuff uh, near the very end of the movie. And I didn't really care for that part of it. But the characters are really well done. And I think, you know, as discussed earlier, uh, John Michael Hayes, I think he did a really good job of developing these characters, especially, like I said, Grace Kelly, her mother. I think those characters are wonderful. But when you get down to it, there's just not a ton to this film. And uh, that won't be the only one I'll be talking about like that tonight. But yeah, if you like Cary Grant, I think you're going to probably like this one a little better than I did. I think it's still a pretty solid movie, though. Now, it's not going to stack up to the top of Hitchcock stuff, but it is definitely a middle-tier Hitchcock, and uh, middle-tier Hitchcock is, yeah, a lot better than a lot of other directors' top-tier stuff. So, I did like To Catch a Thief. I just wanted a little more of it, and I wanted maybe a little less Cary Grant in it, although I know that's not uh, feasible. So, I would definitely recommend checking that one out, but know that you're not getting in for any kind of horror experience And, um, yeah, uh, Cary Grant wears a very interesting outfit for, uh, a good majority of the film, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, To Catch a Thief was pretty solid. Uh, I would say maybe it's more of like a, a mystery drama action type film. I don't really know if I'd put the thriller thing in there, so... So yeah, those are my thoughts on that one, and we can go ahead and move on. I just don't have a ton to say on that. In an interview post-release, Hitchcock told a French publication, it was easy to make an artistic film, but difficult to make a commercially successful one. You can imagine that didn't go over very well. Film criticism was changing towards finding meaning in films, which was something Hitchcock had no interest in. His granddaughter was enrolled in a film class, and Hitchcock helped her with an assignment covering Shadow of a Doubt, which was one of Hitchcock's favorite of his films, and I absolutely love this story, uh, that she only managed to get a C on it with Hitchcock helping her. 
And when he found out she got a C, to which he responded, I'm sorry, that's the best I can do. So Hitchcock, who controlled and put together this film, could only put together an analysis good enough to get a C on it. So uh, that tells you, I think that speaks a lot to the intent of directors and how we sometimes take messages and run with them and uh, kind of poke and prod at stuff and sometimes make something out of nothing. I think we're very concerned with finding meaning in films and finding some kind of message or something else the director's trying to say, and I don't think that's always the case. But anyway, I digress on that. Uh, He was, however, in favor of the up-and-coming auteur theory, as it justified his thoughts that the director was responsible for the success of a film. So this really was a theory that fed his ego. The emergence of the auteur theory actually helped him to gain a popularity in France that he never had before. Hayes and Hitchcock began work on The Trouble with Harry during the production of To Catch a Thief. The novel it's based on would focus on a corpse that wouldn't stay buried and causes various townsfolk to believe they killed the corpse. When deciding upon the film's setting, Hitch decided to move it from London to Vermont. And this is one that um, I didn't get to see for this recording. I don't think it's really thriller horror at all. I think it's much more of like a macabre comedy, but I really liked the premise of it. And I do want to check it out. It it is on that set, um, that big Blu-ray set that I have for Hitchcock. So I do want to check it out one day. Unfortunately, I just didn't get to take a look. When commenting about actress Shirley MacLaine in the film and her relative lack of experience, Hitchcock stated that he'd simply have fewer bad knots to untie. He gave her as little direction as possible because he wanted her to act naturally. McLean recalls during the first script reading that she barely had any knowledge of how to read a script, let alone act. She came from a dance background and just kind of read it at herself. At the end, Hitch proclaimed she had the guts of a bank robber. Not necessarily sure what that means, but uh, apparently he admired her for (laughs) doing her first script reading in front of him. Filming began in September of 1954 and only lasted a month on location due to the rain and wind, making it nearly impossible to film. The crew arrived to film in late September, expecting full fall foliage to be present, but instead the trees were nearly empty. They had to glue leaves to the trees to get the effect they wanted. So that sucks. You're you're going there for this fall feel, and uh, you end up having to glue leaves to them back to the tree instead. In mid-October, they returned to the studio to film, taking a ton of the Vermont leaves with them. Bernard Herrmann was brought in to compose the film, and this marked the first of many times he and Hitchcock would work together. The Trouble with Harry debuted in the U.S. and Vermont on September 30th, 1955. I think it's really cool that they shot it in Vermont and then released the film there because you never see a film opening in Vermont. It didn't do very well in America, with many claiming it was a boring film. Hitchcock believed the studio didn't promote it in the right way. He thought this was a very much 
had that, you know, English sense of humor and maybe it didn't translate well to American audiences. The film ended up losing half a million dollars, so not one of his brighter moments. It did, however, see success in France and played for a long time there. After production wrapped on The Trouble with Harry, Hitchcock began talks with Lou Wasserman, who was the president of MCA and was his former agent, about, and they talked about getting into TV. By the mid-50s, Hollywood studios were starting to make content for TV as well as theaters, so they're not necessarily, I know we talked a little bit in the Val Luton episodes about them being kind of clashing with each other with Hollywood studios trying to make huge entertainment for the big screen and the TVs kind of eating away at their margins. But by the time we get to the mid-50s, Hollywood is getting in on the action. Wasserman assured him he would only have to do a little bit of work to pull in a large fee as executive producer and script producer. Although those were mostly just empty titles and he didn't really have those, you know, roles. His biggest role really would be as the presenter in front of every episode. This project would turn into Alfred Hitchcock Presents. For that role, he was paid $129,000 per episode and owned the rights after their initial broadcast. I won't be able to, you know, emphasize enough how sweet of a deal this was for Hitchcock. But going back for a moment, I do want to say that on April 20th of 1955, Hitchcock officially became a U.S. citizen. So he now is a U.S. citizen and he's in for the full ride, you know, some 15 or so years after he came to America. Okay, so jumping back to the TV stuff, at 9.30 p.m. on October 2nd of 1955, Alfred Hitchcock Presents debuted. The show lasted a whopping seven years in its original run, and it was the show's intro that just had Hitchcock's silhouette that really made his silhouette famous around the world, and it made it into a character in and of itself. At this point in time, 48 million American homes had access to TVs, which is not an insubstantial amount. I mean, that's a decent amount of TVs out there. So each episode of the show did have a Hitchcock feel, but he only ever directed a few himself. He directed a mere 20 out of 335 total episodes. Joan Harrison was the actual executive producer, and Norman Lloyd was the associate producer. They would pick the stories for Hitchcock's approval, and once approved, they chose a writer and director and would be in charge of pretty much the entire process from then on. Once they had rough cuts, they would show them to Hitchcock, and sometimes he would give feedback. Most of the time, you would know how Hitchcock felt because he would say, you know, whether it was good or very good, or he would just say, well, thank you meaning he didn't really like it. Most of the episodes only had three days to go through filming and editing, and Hitchcock really enjoyed the pace and the challenge of that. This was said to be the first TV show to take the viewpoint of the criminal instead of the victim, which is interesting, but not all that uncommon for Hitchcock. 
Though it seems he didn't contribute a lot to the production, his name along with the intros and outros added a weight and an appeal to the show. Most thought that he wrote his own scripts for these intros and outro segments, but in reality, he hired Jim Allardyce to write them for him. He asked him to match the macabre sense of humor with the tone that was present in The Trouble with Harry. Hitchcock would constantly be sarcastic before and during the ad reads for sponsors, and at first this made them pretty angry. But when they saw the viewership numbers, they kind of backed off. It's really interesting because I didn't know a ton about this show, but this apparently took Hitchcock's popularity to levels 10 times higher than it was before. I mean, he was now getting, in a couple of anecdotes, you know, he was getting a ton of more fan mail and people would recognize him a lot more out in public and everything. This really made him a face and really, you know, put him out there in the public spotlight and made him more popular than he had ever been. And I think that probably helped to propel some of his films after this to the level that they reached. Okay, let's jump back in to the film talk because even with all the TV stuff going on, Hitchcock had another film project in mind. He first thought about remaking The Man Who Knew Too Much way back in 1941, and I think I had covered that on a previous episode. The idea resurfaced in 1956 when Hitchcock had a contractual obligation to make another Paramount film. The studio was on board and thought it would translate nicely into the current era. John Michael Hayes was brought on as the screenwriter, but was told he wasn't allowed to watch the original film or read any part of its script. Instead, all the plot details would be relayed to him by Hitch during a briefing. By the time filming began, Hayes only had the opening scenes done. He sent the rest of the script pages via airmail as he finished them, which is crazy, They said he sent like eight to ten pages at a time, and they'd be waiting on these, and they would just come into the set, and they'd have to just go right into filming. Doris Day was chosen for the female lead because Hitchcock liked her performance in the movie Storm Warning. She had never traveled out of the country and was very nervous when they went to film the opening scenes in Marrakech. She was also upset about the treatment of the animals during filming, although Hitchcock assured her They were all well-fed and taken care of. She claims Hitchcock gave her no direction while filming, whether it was before, during, or after a scene. She took this to mean he disliked her, and she was really crushed by this. She eventually set up a meeting with him and offered to resign and be replaced if he thought she wasn't up for the role. Hitchcock was shocked by this and said it was quite the opposite. He actually thought she was doing an excellent job, and as we kind of know from other anecdotes, if Hitchcock's not saying a lot to you, then you're probably doing your job correctly. There were some issues when they when it came to filming in Marrakech. Ramadan was taking place at the time, and this led to some of the extras being weak from hunger, and other ones selling their meal tickets from the filming and not coming back. Shooting was also delayed when the extras heard rumors of them not being paid if they couldn't see the camera. This pretty much caused them to have to shut down and leave Marrakesh and 
go on to their next destination. Hitchcock was also more than ready to leave, and pretty much was as soon as he got there, having established a disdain for location filming. It said it was so hot that Hitchcock actually had to put aside his suit and instead wear a short sleeve shirt when filming. The next stop on the filming trip were interior shots in London before returning home and wrapping filming up by August of 1955. Said that Hitchcock was ready to go home after Marrakesh, but had already kind of committed to those interiors in London. By the time they were done, they were 34 days over their scheduled filming time, which seems like a big delay. John Michael Hayes was upset that he had to share credit with Angus McPhail, who was brought in initially to kind of put together a script for this. And Hayes felt that the final script had a little to no resemblance to McPhail's initial attempt. Hayes fought this and was awarded the sole writing credit. However, it came at a price as Hitchcock never worked with him again. Bernard Herman was back to compose the background score. He was given the option to record a new piece for the climax, but opted to use the song used in the original, which was Arthur Benjamin's Cantata Storm Clouds from the 1934 film, as he thought it fit with the new film. He did extend the song in certain sections, though. When asked about the film afterwards and the difference between this and the original, Hitchcock claims that the original film was made by a talented amateur, while the remake was made by a professional. He backpedaled on that statement eventually, though, and did consider the original to be one of his favorites. Doris Day's performance of K. Seurat Seurat won the 1956 Academy Award for Best Original Song, and it also reached number two and number one on the U.S. and U.K. pop charts, respectively. Critical reaction to the film was mostly positive. There were some critics who mentioned liking the original more, though. It ended up releasing on June 1st of 1956 and instantly became the highest grossing film of that year, the movie had a budget of $1.2 million and earned $11.3 million domestically. A funny home media note about this one is the film was restricted from being re-released until 1983. Um, I don't think Hitchcock wanted it out, and it pr took until after his death for it to be released again, and that was when Universal acquired the rights to the film and released it on VHS. So this one ran for two hours and was released in 1956. The tagline is, a little knowledge can be a deadly thing, and the synopsis reads, a widescreen Technicolor remake by Hitchcock of his 1934 film of the same title. A couple vacationing in Morocco with their young son accidentally stumble upon an assassination plot. When the child is kidnapped to ensure their silence, they have to take matters into their own hands to save him. Now, this one differs quite a great deal from the original. And I gotta be honest here, this was not my favorite James Stewart role. And honestly, I feel kind of flat on this one overall. Um, I think it's very different from the original. I think there's enough differences in there. It's just kind of got the same 
skeletal structure. So it's not really the same film beat for beat. There's not a lot of the same dialogue or anything like that. And James Stewart is obviously playing a completely different character than we had in the original. We also don't have Peter Lorre here as the kind of bad guy. And honestly, the the cast just doesn't really work for me here. Doris Day is not good. She has her moments for sure. And Stuart has his moments as well. But it's weird to say this, but I almost think this doesn't hold up to the original. I think you can take some of what Hitchcock said and look at this as a more glossy, more polished film, but I think it loses a little bit of originality and it loses a little bit in the translation. You can tell by this point that Hitchcock is setting out to make this a more commercial type film, and it just doesn't work in this case. Now, I know a lot of people do like this one, but um, there was just something off about it, and I... I kind of like how I like some of the pieces, how it starts in uh, Morocco. I think there's some cool things there. But once we get to London, it kind of loses some of its luster. Now, I do like when Stuart and Day are working with the um, authorities when they first get there and going down the paths they have. They know they can't tell anyone or their son might be in danger. But mostly a lot of these characters are just flat to me. I don't have a lot of attachment, didn't get a lot of enjoyment out of them. So that's just my take on that film. I really wanted to like it and I thought I would because I do like the other times that Hitchcock worked with Jimmy Stewart. But in this case, it's just something was missing for me and it just kind of felt like there wasn't that spark that a lot of Hitchcock films have. I even think To Catch a Thief had a lot better moments than this film did. And it's not to say that I really disliked it. I mean, I still think it's a pretty solid film. I just think it's very straightforward and not really, again, it's not really creative or inventive and it's not really, I don't think it's that thrilling of a movie either. I mean, we all kind of know how it's going to play out and how it's going to end. And there are definitely some moments where, you know, it gets a little bit tense, but Yeah, I think it's just I don't think the casting was right for this. I don't think it had that necessary spark that it needed to. So while it's a very well made movie and there are definitely some good moments in it. And again, filming in Morocco, that's really cool. I like how they start that film. I like a lot of that sequence in Morocco. It's just as the film goes on, you know, I wasn't really impressed by the Albert Hall part at the end. Although I did like one aspect of that, and I really liked where that certain aspect went leading towards the um, the next part of the film after the Albert Hall sequence. I think that was done really well, and I do like that. But other than that, I definitely would still recommend this one like I would to catch a thief. It's just not one that I feel like stands out in his filmography. All right, we are nearing the home stretch here. So let's get to the last film that I'll be covering in this episode. In his next film, Hitchcock chose to take inspiration from real life and film a dramatization of Manny Balestra's harrowing experience of being mistaken for another man and being accused of his crimes. Hitchcock always wanted to work on a documentary, 
and this would really be the closest he ever got to that. His crew was ordered to follow Balestra on his normal routines throughout the city and interviewed lawyers and judges involved in the case, in addition to visiting the jail where he was held and the mental institution his wife lived in. So they did a lot of extensive work to try to bring Balestra's story to life on the screen. The NYPD wanted nothing to do with the film, and not surprising because, you know, they were the ones who arrested the wrong person in this case. So to compensate for that, Hitch instead brought in retired police officers to consult with him on the film. A lot of the movie was filmed in Jackson Heights, where the real-life Manny lived before he was accused. They filmed the prison scenes in a real inhabited prison in Queens, which I think is really cool that they were going to a jail that's still in use. Uh, adds to some, it kind of adds some reality to the film. And it seems like that's what he was going for, is he wanted to be as close uh, to making this feel real as possible. And you definitely get that, and I'll talk about that a little bit when I talk about the film but it definitely feels different than a lot of other Hitchcock movies. He chose Henry Fonda for the lead role, who he tried and failed to cast in the 40s in both Foreign Correspondent and Saboteur. He knew Grace Kelly was no longer available, as she was off to be married to the royal family, or to a royal family, I think of Monaco, if I remember right. So he turned his sights on Vera Miles, who he saw on TV and, you know, really wanted to work with her. He negotiated a contract with her that would span three films over five years and included the lead in the debut episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He praised Vera and compared her to Grace Kelly, even going as far to say that she would eventually replace Grace Kelly. Which I don't think that's saying anything bad about Grace Kelly, it's just that Kelly had moved on by this point from acting, really. Hitchcock wasn't a fan of the way that Miles dressed, as he found it too colorful and distracting. It's strange to think of it this way, but it was thought that that was one of the reasons that they filmed in black and white, which was a big shock going into this one, not knowing that they were that it was in black and white, um, and not really having a whole lot of background on this film going in either. Fonda recalled that he loved working with Hitchcock. Unfortunately, Vera Miles didn't feel the same way and didn't appreciate how overbearing he was. He not only insisted on directing her during filming, but also on her activities outside of acting, including her diet and the company she kept. When she pushed back on all of this, he lost interest in her and took a hands-off approach during filming. This was most likely what led to her performance never capturing the attention that he initially set out for, because remember, he had hopes and dreams of her replacing Grace Kelly and being his next starlet, but that never happened. Hitchcock decided to make the ending much more hopeful than the real-life conclusion to the story. When Truffaut pressed him on this in an interview, he responded by asking if he wanted him to work in the art house. So that kind of makes it clear that Hitchcock isn't necessarily worried about the art. A lot of times over and over again, he would have uh, reiterated that he's in it for the commercial success and the success with the public. Herman returned to score the film, and it ended up 
being one of his most subtle scores. Film was released on December 22nd of 1956 and really wasn't one of his more successful films, which I find interesting and a little disappointing. With this film, Hitchcock fulfilled his contract agreement with Warner Brothers that dated all the way back to Rope in 1948. He would return to the safety of Paramount after completing this one. So to set it up a little bit, this one ran for 105 minutes, and the tagline reads, Somewhere, somewhere, there must be the right man. And the synopsis reads, In 1953, an innocent man named Christopher Emmanuel Manny Balestro is arrested after being mistaken for an armed robber. So take that into account that this thing comes out three years after the actual, you know, incident. So first things first, I think this is an underrated Hitchcock film. I think a lot of people don't give this, I I mean, they don't think of it highly. They don't think of it as one of his best or anything like that. I personally loved this movie and was blown away by it. And it was so gripping. And compared to the other two, because I watched this one last, this one just had so much more to it. And I was so interested in this one when I wasn't as engaged with the other two. I think Fonda's great. And yeah, Vera Miles doesn't really get a lot of time to shine in this. Although she does have some pretty dramatic moments and... I think the moments that she has really do reflect what she's trying to go for and what she's trying to, you know, replicate in those moments. I think she does do a good job of that. It's just a lot of the time she's kind of in the background. This story is just kind of heartbreaking. And it kind of sucks the way that Manny was treated, um, I'm guessing in real life and in this film, Uh, I can't even imagine the whole time I was trying to put myself in the in his shoes and what would I do if I was accused of this and they couldn't, you know, clear me of this crime. And I had to go to trial and all this other stuff and be in prison and everything else. And uh, I think it does such a good job of just setting up his normal routine, his daily life. And then it you know, and it gets you invested a little bit in the characters. And then we get to the part where it's just, you know, he's accused and it's all a whirlwind after that. But I'm a sucker for these older procedural type shows where, you know, we see the process of, you know, he's got to get arraigned and he has to, you know, post bail and he has to go to a trial and everything else. It just shows it from start to finish on that. And it's really heartbreaking and upsetting of what happens to one of the characters in this. Um, I'm not going to give anything away on that, but one of the characters has to go through a lot and kind of breaks down, and that is very heartbreaking. Um, I think the lawyer in this film is played really well, and again, Fonda does an incredible job. I just think all around it's well acted, and it just feels real and gritty, and I think that's something with Hitchcock that I haven't really um, felt with the other two that were in this one, but this one just feels different in general. I mean, this feels like something Hitchcock never really did 
did anything else on because yes, he's done gritty films and everything like that, but this one just has a completely different feel. Feels like it's almost not a Hitchcock film, but I mean, Hitchcock has such a wide range and variety of stuff he does, but um, I absolutely loved this one. I thought it was incredible right now. And I haven't added the later films that I haven't got to yet, even though if I've seen them before. So before those things like Vertigo or Psycho or anything, it is sitting in my top 10 of Hitchcock. And I don't know if it'll really stay there when it's all said and done. But this was one just like with Shadow of a Doubt that I was really surprised by. And again, I think I have to reward it for just being so gripping and interesting from start to finish. So if I'm going to recommend one from this episode, I would definitely recommend that one. That would be the one I would start with. But hey, it seems like a lot of people don't like this one as much as I do. And they like The Man Who Knew Too Much remake more than I do. So there's no accounting for taste, truly. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. All right, so that's going to wrap up Hitchcock for this episode. I will be back on the very next episode to talk about Vertigo with Nathan Bartlebaugh and get into the details and background on that one in North by Northwest. So we're getting close here. There's probably still uh, maybe three sections of Hitchcock I'm going to do after the next one. So it'll still take a little bit to do, but we are getting to the end of this Hitchcock journey. All right, let's go ahead and move this thing on to the next segment, though. You left to find Apollo Gold. A thousand miles, you are all alone. All alone, long in the anywhere. You'll come back home someday. Hello and welcome to the inaugural edition of Screaming Off the Shelves. Now, this will be my little mini segments that are dedicated to clearing my backlog of stuff that I have sitting over on my shelves that I haven't really touched or watched. I mean, I still have a ton of these in the plastic. And... Yeah, I just kind of want to give some, I guess the way that these differ from, mainly my point and my goal is to knock these off of my watch list and how this differs from like a Screaming Around the World segment because a lot of these are going to end up being international is I will do some talk about what the set contains and what kind of special features and things like that are there. So first up, no surprise, I do have a couple of international films that I am going with this time. 
And one I kind of happened upon, one I wanted to watch because, you know, there was an arrow sale and I wanted to see if I would like the the movie at all since it's not really my style. And the other one was also on the arrow sale. So these are both arrow video releases. But that was one that I just took a shot on because it was part of a collection. So let's start with the latter of those two. And I want to talk about Massacre Time. So Massacre Time is a spaghetti western that is part of the Vengeance Trails for Classic Western set. I was pretty excited about this one. This is a, it's got, you know, the four separate uh, Blu-ray cases, which Arrow is great about their collections and how they put them together. And it's got the slipcover over top of all of them. And in here, you have Westerns by classic Italian directors. You've got Massacre Time by Lucio Fulci. And then you also have, um, in here, you've got Massimo Dallamano, who is one of my favorites from What Have You Done to Solange and What Have They Done to Your Daughters, and among other, a couple other films. And then you have Antonio Margheriti, and one other director that I'm not really familiar with. But as far as spaghetti Westerns go, I'm not very well versed in them. I've seen probably five or six spaghetti westerns, and a lot of those are directed by Sergio Leone. But I wanted to take this, and now there's a new Arrow set as well with some other ones, and I'm very interested in in checking out some of those. And I've got also a long list of spaghetti westerns, like classic spaghetti westerns I need to check out, but, but I'm liking what I see so far. I think the main difference with spaghetti westerns are they're more brutal and vicious and less of the kind of happy ending stuff we would see out of the Hollywood westerns around the same time period. Now, I'll go ahead and set up the movie first and talk about it a little bit, and then I can get into what's included on the Blu-ray. So this one was directed by Lucio Fulci. And the synopsis reads, In 1866 New Mexico, Tom Corbett is a prospector who is called back to his hometown in Laramie Town, Texas, at the bequest of an old family friend. Tom arrives in the town to see it under the control of a ruthless and greedy gangster named Jason Scott, whose psychotic and murder-crazed son, Junior Scott, runs it with fear with a posse of thugs who kill anyone who protests their business tactics. Tom finds his brother Jeff, a drunkard, looked after by their family-made Mercedes. Tom then tries to persuade Jeff to help him take down the sadistic Scots so the town can rest easy in peace and harmony again. So this is a 1966 film, so before Fulci got into some of his later stuff, and you know, in contrast to a lot of the stuff we'd see with Fulci later on, this has a very straightforward plot with not a lot of surprises or twists. There is a literal twist, but I mean, there's not a lot of, um, it's a very linear narrative plot. Now, I did get lost a little bit at the beginning, trying to follow what was going on, but once we get into it and get settled in with these characters, it's very easy to follow. What I like about Massacre Time is that it doesn't pull any punches. Like I'm saying about some of the other spaghetti westerns I've watched, 
I mean, no one is safe in these movies. We see some very upsetting scenes in this, but it's not the typical Fulci upsetting scenes. Like, there's not the over-the-top gore and violence yet. Uh, Fulci wouldn't get into that until later. Instead, we see it in the terms of something that I think is much stronger, which are, you know, the deaths of certain people and certain imagery that we see that's just kind of heartbreaking. I mean, no one is safe in this film, and Fulci makes that very clear. I also like that there's this mystery running throughout And while I wasn't blown away with the reveal of what the mystery is, you know, I can't think of another thing that would have been more satisfying is my thing. So, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's a little underwhelming. But what would have, you know, really surprised me and really got me to fall in love with this ending here? And I don't know if there's an answer. So I have to give it a break on that, even though if I didn't love it, I feel like that fits about as well as anything else to reveal this mystery. But there's definitely a mystery going on. So in this one, you have a couple of seasoned actors. You have uh, Franco Nero, who is playing the lead. He's playing, um, yeah, I guess that you can call him the lead in this one. He's playing Tom Corbett, and his brother is being played by George Hilton, who is, you know, if you like Giallos, you'll be familiar with plenty of the things that he's in. And same thing with Nero. Nero is, I think he's in the fifth chord. But he was also in stuff like um, the original Django and The Visitor and other movies like that. So Franco Nero is a very big name. Here's my problem with Franco Nero's character is he plays the role of, you know, if we're equating it to the Dollars trilogy, he is playing the role of, you know, the man with no name, so to say. He is that lead character, and he kind of they kind of build him up and treat him as this very much, you know, Western lead who is very, you know, all the time these leads in these Westerns, you know, they're sharpshooters, they're gonna take out hundreds of guys by themselves, all this stuff. I'm exaggerating a bit, but Nero is pretty ineffective through most of the film. And it's his brother, played by George Hilton who is the one that comes off as this, you know, for lack of a better term, a badass. You know, he is the he's the thing that the bad guys should fear in this movie. And I love that character of Jeffrey Corbett played by uh, George Hilton. I think it's the best part of this movie. I think he does such a good job of bringing that character to life. And, you know, he's always drinking and he's always wisecracking and, you know, he has a he has to say the same line before he comes out and shoots um, all these people down. And I love that. His character is awesome. He is clearly the most overpowered person in this Western. And I love that. And he kind of overshines or outshines his brother. And when you first get to town, it's kind of playing on that because we think that Franco Nero's character is going to be the one who takes out all these people and his brother is this drunk who seems like he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, there's this very comical, but still good scene in a bar or a saloon early on. And it involves a um, man playing a piano and getting involved with Jeffrey as they kind of fight. And 
there's some really good comical elements to this Western throughout that keep it kind of lighthearted while there's still very heavy stuff. And I mean, we see uh, maybe we see something early on about uh, Fulci's interest in like whips and things like that, because there's a very lengthy scene with a whip that kind of goes on forever and you don't know when it's going to end. And but that's the kind of stuff is it we have those comical moments. And then we also have moments where it's like this guy is just getting brutalized with a whip for minutes on end. And it kind of does a really good job of straddling that line. So, yeah, even though our main hero doesn't uh, necessarily live up to the hype, I think we get enough from his brother that kind of pulls the film forward. And not that Nero's character's bad. He's just not necessarily the typical Western lead. And that's, I mean, that's pretty cool to have, honestly. Uh, we also get, and I, again, I haven't watched many spaghetti Westerns, but we get some crazy death and aerobatic type scenes. It's almost like you're watching a wuxia film or something with some wire foo later on. Not that there is wire foo. It's not necessarily that, but there's just people, you know, someone gets shot and they fly halfway across the screen and it's very exaggerated. And I think that's fun. It adds to some of the levity, even though I, I could have done without it. I would say I could do without that for sure. It was fun the first couple times Then I'm like, OK, maybe I don't need to see this anymore. But I will say this culminates in a pretty good showdown at the end. We get a pretty good reveal. But the thing I want to drive home is this is not a standard Western that I'm used to. Seen and growing up with the older American Westerns, they're very different than what we're seeing in these films. And I'm very intrigued to dive into more of them. I think I'm going to learn more about the genre and get into more. You know, I've got three more in this set that I want to uh, review and talk about. So I will get to those ones. But overall, it's it's got me going towards watching more and trying to to get more of these. If I was to rate this, I'd probably come in with. I'm in between. I'm just going to go a little higher than I normally would. I think I'll go an eight on this one because I do enjoy it. Now, maybe as I get more spaghetti westerns under my belt, maybe it'll fall down a bit. But the characters in this one are good and it's got the good action and stuff that you want as well. I wouldn't call it as good as something like uh, Django or something like that, but or uh you know, certainly not for a few dollars more or anything, but I'd say it's a very good, solid movie and pretty good gateway as I get deeper into spaghetti westerns. Now, as far as what this one comes packing, if I'm looking at this Vengeance Trail set, Massacre Time comes with the US dub, which I watched to the dub version, and it's pretty pretty decent it's pretty passable i don't really i didn't really notice many issues with it it also has an audio commentary by uh, authors and critics c courtney joiner and harry park then it has two men alone which is a documentary featuring a video interview with franco nero and then there's an archival video uh, interview as well with george hilton and then it also has The Era of Violence, a video interview with film historian Fabio Meloli. So it's a pretty good set. It's got some good stuff on there. Um, I unfortunately have not dove into any of those yet, but 
I hope to maybe in the future. Those sound pretty interesting. Yeah, but that is Massacre Time. So you should definitely check that out if Spaghetti Westerns are your thing or you're looking to get into them. I think you can find it on Tubi as well. But I'll be honest with you, I think I've tried to watch this one on Tubi before. And here's the difference in what you're getting when you buy the Blu-ray. Is that Tubi print is uh, pretty bad. So you're much better off getting the Blu-ray copy of it. Okay, so I did mention Wuxia and Wirefoo a little early on. So I want to get into a film that has those things, and that is Lady Whirlwind. So this is one that is paired with a film called Hapkaido and was on the latest Arrow sale that they had going on. And I wanted to know whether I would like it. Uh, this is directed by Wang Feng, and the synopsis reads, A young woman determines to help a man who is being pursued by gangsters so that she would have the pleasure of killing him herself as revenge for causing the death of her sister. So this one's a pretty short film. It's 88 minutes long. It was released in 1972. And this is an interesting one. And here's another one where I'm going to just say right off the bat what you get when you get the uh, arrow set versus trying to find this one online because it is on archive.org. But that is the dubbed version, which this is a terrible dub. And it's also a very bad print of the movie. But Lady Whirlwind is interesting. I haven't found much success in this genre, particularly, you know, this Hong Kong style of uh, martial arts film. But I gotta say, this one was pretty good. And, you know, basically, like, yes, the story kind of sets it up, but you have a guy who is almost killed by these crime bosses who run this town. And this is another genre I'm not particularly too familiar with so you have to forgive me if I'm hitting on some tropes or some things that are used often within the genre but you know he's working on his redemption story everyone thinks he's dead but a lady comes to town who is very well versed in martial arts and very good at it and she's you know beating everyone up and asking where this guy is most people say you know he's dead he's been dead and, you know, it's kind of the same thing with Massacre Time when he's coming to town the first time and no one wants to tell him where his brother is. So, but we end up finding out that the guy is very much alive and she is there to get her vengeance on him while he at the same time wants to get vengeance on the people who beat him within an inch of his life in the original, in the opening scene. So I really liked the story on this one, and I think it is a very basic plot, just like Massacre Time, but it has really good elements to it. It it tells itself well. There's one jarring scene, and this is maybe what I'm talking about, the tropes later on, where, you know, this guy is getting trained by someone who he just stumbles upon and coincidentally this guy is like a master so we get a training montage for like 10 minutes or something but other than that i think this film is pretty solid i mean i don't think there's a lot of like over the top i think so i think a part of my problem with the martial arts films is 
I do like fight scenes and I do like action scenes and things like that. But some of these go on for so long. And I think that's a little bit of a drawback for things like this. But honestly, I was so into the story that I didn't really it didn't really bother me. And I did like some of the martial arts action. It's just I think that's something where I don't want to watch, you know, a 10 minute fight scene all the time. But unless it's done, you know, differently. And I think. Lady Whirlwind is a pretty, you know, the I don't I don't shit. She's not referred to as Lady Whirlwind in this, but. Our main heroine in this, I guess you could say she's an interesting character and she's got some she's got her motives and you kind of understand why she does what she does. And in the end. I think she's a pretty good character the way they set her up. And yeah, I think this one moves along at a pretty good pace. And other than that one scene, it's pretty good i mean we get a very sadistic just like massacre time we get a very sadistic villain in this it's very clear who the bad guys are we get a great scene in a casino uh with our lead character here and she kind (laughs) of it's very interesting to see a woman walk into a casino full of men and the looks she gets and how that whole scene plays out but yeah i was pleasantly surprised by lady whirlwind I didn't expect to like this one and wasn't expecting to really buy this, but I ended up getting it and enjoying it. And this has me interested to maybe see some other stuff in this genre. I'm not quite as enthused as I was to see more spaghetti westerns and things along those lines. But hey, I've already got one with um, Hokkaido that goes along with it. And yeah, the story is good. The action is good especially if you are more into the martial arts type stuff i think it's a pretty well done film just please um i'm gonna ask if you're if you're watching it you probably want to watch it in mandarin with the subtitles even though the disc does have the english dubbed versions as well they also have with the some of the special features as we're talking about this they do have uh, new translated English subtitles for this. And you, of course, get the. Uh, with Arrow, you get the reversible sleeve um, with the different disc covers. But uh, as for special features. You do get commentary by Frank Jung and Robert Bobby Samuels. And you get several different commentaries, honestly. You get another one, with Frank Jung and uh, Michael Wirth, and then one by Sam Jung. Um, Lady Whirlwind Speaks, the first part of the newly filmed interview with Angela Mao. And Angela Mao is um, our leading lady here in this one. You have a, a little featurette called Kung Fu Cooking, newly filmed conversation with Mao's son, Thomas King. And yeah, I think that's about it for that one. But Again, I haven't watched those ones either. I'll try to do a better job of watching these in the future. But I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised with Lady Whirlwind. And as I maybe try to delve into you know, Chinese and Hong Kong cinema more, um, I might do some more of these on these episodes. I don't necessarily have any more on my shelves, but you know, it could certainly fall into the Screaming Around the World segments. But but Lady Whirlwind, I would come in probably, I think I want to come in around a 7.5 on Lady Whirlwind. Maybe, yeah, I think a 7.5 is fair with Lady Whirlwind. 
So not something I absolutely love, but something that's got me curious to see more. But that's going to wrap up this first segment of Screaming Off the Shelf. And let me know if you're you know, planning on picking either of these up, if you have either of these. I know for sure I think Ian Urza probably owns both of these. <laughs> I think Ian's a big fan of both movies. But let me know what your thoughts are on them. And we'll go ahead and keep this show moving and on to the next segment. Hey everyone, I am back with another anime season review from 2022, just trying to get caught up and get on to the 2023 stuff. So, this time around I'll be reviewing the fall 2022 season, which honestly was a pretty jam-packed season. A lot of things ended up falling off for me, but I still ended up finishing nine shows from the season, which was... Uh, still pretty solid. I finished up the year with, or, you know, as of now, there's still a few shows that I might need to go back to or catch up on, but right now it's sitting at 34 total anime from the year, which is a little down from last year, but I feel like last year had the added bonus of having stuff that was pushed back or delayed from COVID. So 2021 was a huge year, but I think 2022 still had a lot of good stuff. I don't think it was as good as a whole as 2021, but maybe I'll do a little top 10 roundup at the end. Also, something new I'm trying out, I'm going to try to rank these into tiers as well as I'm ranking them through, you know, ranking these nine shows. I'm going to do the top nine, starting backwards from nine. I'm also going to put them into tiers. So, you know, whether it's a C rank show or a B rank show or A rank or S rank, S being pretty much perfects and or, you know, things that I would give like 10 out of 10 is not necessarily perfect, but I do want to kind of put those into tiers so you know, not only like based on ranking, but what kind of uh, how quickly you need to get to this one and how um, good this show is or not overall, like when all things are compared and not just the season. So starting off in the lowest tier of the season, I think I have... Three different shows here. 
And the first one I'm a little bit disappointed by, and that is Mobile Suit Gundam, The Witch from Mercury. I feel like it's been a little while, probably since Iron-Blooded Orphans, that we've got a Mobile Suit Gundam series. And I am a huge fan of the series and have watched a ton of the different series within that franchise. And I was pretty excited to hear that we're getting a new one. Now, I've only watched up so far up to the 12 episodes, or 13 episodes, including the prologue, that were released in 2022. I haven't checked out the season that started in March, or April, sorry, and went along with the spring season. But let's go ahead and set this one up. Ran for 12 episodes for the first core. Studio is Sunrise, of course, as with all things Gundam. And the synopsis reads... AS-122, and that is Adstella, and that's the time period. If you're watching any of these Gundam shows, you're not familiar. The main storyline that started with the original Gundam is the Universal Century, and there's a lot of stuff within that, tons of spinoffs. But the ones that happen within different timelines or universes are given their own dating system. So Adstella or AS is the one in this one. An era when a multitude of corporations have entered space and built huge economic system. A lone girl from the remote planet Mercury transfers to the Ostiacasia School of Technology, run by the Benerit Group, which dominates the mobile suit industry. Her name is Seleta Mercury. With a scarlet light burning in her pure heart, this girl walks step by step through a new world. The tags on this are action, mecha, sci-fi, and you have outer space, political, real robot, school life, and original work. So with this one, I, I think my biggest issue, so you get a prologue, which I didn't really like at all. I did not like the prologue, and I was worried about how I would like the show. Luckily, you do get hooked into the show a little bit once the actual 12 episodes start. Um, I should preface this by saying there was a prologue that was put out, I think, last summer, and it showed the origins of how we got to this. So we have this Gundam show here. Usually what does it for me with the Gundams are the designs and builds of them, which I think we do have a few cool ones here, and also the main cast of characters or pilots, and I think that is what's a little weak here. Uh, What we have here is you you know, have the gunned arm technology, which is basically a model of Gundam that was banned by these massive corporations that have banded together in this group. And they are basically run the rules of all mobile suits and mobile warfare. And what you end up with are these students, and Sleta Mercury is one of those. Uh, she comes there with something that may or may not be based on Gundam technology and things start to get a little weird as it progresses. I think the cast of characters is honestly pretty weak. I'm not a big fan of most of them, especially the main character. I don't really like her either. There's some pretty dumb, cheesy sayings in this stuff, and I'm not saying that older Gundam shows don't have that issue. They absolutely do. But this one, I had a hard time connecting. I would get you know, connected with it and get really into it. And then it would go through a period where I just didn't care a whole lot. And maybe this will change once everything's out. I think this is the first Gundam that I've actually watched as it's came out since 
something like Wing or G Gundam when I was a kid, usually I'm watching through the entirety of it and getting to see how it all plays out. But either way, I think that we do have a fairly standard and boring pilot. Um, I think it has some great company politics stuff in it and does have some pretty cool characters, but I think overall it does fall flat. I like that there's this organization, this group of companies who are all in this defense organization. And I like the way that some of the students interact with each other and how we they end up coming together. But really, this thing could have been higher on my list, but I feel like that final scene of episode 12, I absolutely hated it. I feel like it went in the direction of being dark for the sake of being dark. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but I just absolutely hated everything about that last scene. It left a sour taste in my mouth. I'll probably continue on to see how it progresses, at least with this set of episodes that's releasing in the spring right now. But for all intents and purposes, this falls to the bottom of my list for the fall season. And I would put this as like a C-tier show for me. It's not one you need to rush out and see. If you're a Gundam fan, you're probably going to want to see it. But if you're not, I wouldn't be in any hurry to check it out in particular. There's so many other better Gundam series. Up next at number 8 is another one that I feel like I am in the minority about, but I at least know I have one other friend who feels the same way that I do about this one, and that is Chainsaw Man. So Chainsaw Man ran for 12 episodes, and by the way, and I'm always forgetting this, Chainsaw Man and Mobile Suit Gundam, which for Mercury are both on Crunchyroll. This is done by Studio Mappa, and the synopsis reads, Denji is a teenage boy living with a chainsaw devil named Pachita. Due to the debt his father left behind, he has been living a rock-bottom life while repaying his debt by harvesting devil corpses with Pachita. One day, Denji is betrayed and killed. As his consciousness fades, he makes a contract with Pachita and gets revived as Chainsaw Man, a man with a devil's heart. The tags are action, fantasy, horror, shonen, dark fantasy, demons, urban fantasy, and it is based on a manga. Chainsaw Man was one of my most anticipated shows. I've been anticipating this one for a long time. And listen, I'm not trying to be iconoclast. I'm not trying to go against... I'm not trying to be a dissenter here. Because this is very highly regarded within a lot of circles, all the rankings that I see. People love Chainsaw Man. And honestly, after that first episode, I sat back and thought to myself... This is the perfect anime episode. I loved that first episode. I think it's one of the best introductory episodes ever. And if you want to get hooked straight from the start, that is absolutely there. The problem with me and, you know, I just, at the end of the day, I just think it's unfair what this show did and the way it goes off in a almost completely different direction by the time you end that first episode and start episode two. I think it advertises one thing with that and then just kind of goes completely off the rails and in a completely different direction afterwards. I think it's just... It has a lot of problems, and I should have known when I was watching the ending or opening 
to this, you know, the theme, I was like, oh, wow, this seems like maybe it doesn't fit with how this, I think it was the, the ending at the end of the first episode, and it was, I just didn't think it fit with what the show was, and I was worried it was going to go in that direction, and it does. Uh, for me, and you can call me a prude, you can call me whatever, but I think a lot of people know, or you should know by now with me talking about this stuff, there's just way too much, I, I don't know, things that I don't have problems with, in other, which I do have problems with some of this stuff, I guess, in other movies, but it's too dark and it's too sinister. And there's just too much like sexual content and crude language and all that kind of stuff. In anime, that just turns me off for some reason. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, I don't necessarily know if I need to see that or feel that in my anime. And I think it's because I grew up with anime of a certain persuasion. And yeah, I'm absolutely a little bit of a prude about that. Call me out for that for sure. But even with all that stuff, because a lot of times I would have just turned off a show like this, I still made it through the first season. I think the biggest problem at all for Chainsaw Man is there was just something missing. That first episode captured me, and then I had just lost it by the time we got through midway through the season. I just wasn't feeling it anymore, and I think that's what happened. I mainly just fell off. And I had a friend who thought the same thing, that it was just missing something. And he doesn't care about any of these other aspects that I'm rambling on about not liking. He just felt like something was missing, and that's how I felt as well. I think they did such a good job of opening it up with that first episode, but at the end, something is just missing. And I'll probably check out a season two, and uh, apologies to Jess, the amateur destroyer over there from the horror cast. I know you love this one, but it just wasn't for me in the same way that something like Spy Cross Family wasn't. I wanted to like them. I even thought they were great opening up both of those shows, and they're very well regarded, but just not for me, and I have to be honest with my rankings and ratings. So this still falls within that C-tier level of anime. I think for most people it could be higher. I think most people would regard this one of the best shows of the year. Not necessarily for me, but don't let that stop you from checking it out. If you're interested in the premise and that other stuff doesn't really bother you, there's a lot of good stuff in Chainsaw Man. And I'll say, I think I've said this before, but for me to finish an anime series or a show or anything, it has to at least be pretty decent and drive me along. So these aren't bad shows. They're just, for me, would be lower on my list of priorities. So... That's Chainsaw Man, and we can move on to number seven, which is the last of these C-tier shows, and this one was surprising as well, and mainly surprising in the same way where I felt something was missing with the with the entire series, not just this season, but this is also a very highly regarded show. I think all three of these are in like the top 150 or whatever all-time over on Anime Planet where I get my synopsises and stuff. Yeah, hate me if you want to, but I just, again, I've got to give my honest opinion, and this is Mob Psycho 100 Season 3. I ran for 12 episodes and done by Studio Bones, and was also on Crunchyroll. Now, this is the Season 3, so I'll give a brief synopsis of Season 1, which is Kagiyama Shigeo, a.k.a. Mob, is a boy who has trouble expressing himself, but who happens to be a powerful esper. Mob is determined to live a normal life and keeps his ESP suppressed. 
but when his emotions surge to a level of 100%, something terrible happens to him. As he's surrounded by false espers, evil spirits, and mysterious organizations, what will Mob think? What choices will he make? The tags are action, comedy, drama, exorcist, overpowered main characters, psychic powers, psychological, school life, supernatural, superpowers, and is based on a manga. Season 3 in particular of this is very much contentious. I I think there are some really good episodes, and then there are just some throwaway ones that make me think, like, why was this season even put together? I think there's some great character development in this season that happens, even though we're not... Mob's not in much of a different place by the time this season starts than he was in the first two. I just think the first two seasons do a better job of kind of putting everything together in a cohesive feeling. This one struggles a little bit of that. We have like three or four different arcs that run through this 12-episode season, and some of them feel like Monster of the Week content that it's just a two- or three-episode arc that nothing really happens with the overarching story. I will say, and this rings true for me for the first couple of seasons and what kept me going through this series, is it's the characters. The characters are awesome. Even though the animation gets very, it's very beautiful, very well done in the battle scenes, the main draw for me here are the characters. And these quirky characters, these weird characters, and just seeing Mob kind of get through his life and kind of navigate all this stuff where he has a boss who's pretty much a con man, but is also someone that he trusts very deeply. So the characters are great here. That's not going to change. And I will say, I wasn't expecting the ending at all. I thought it was pretty anticlimactic in the direction it went. And I honestly didn't care for that, the end of that arc. I really liked, I think that was three a three-episode arc at the end of the season. And I liked the first one, and then it kind of just fell apart for me later. I think early on in the season, there's some really good stuff too. But Mob Psycho 3, I think its biggest issue is it's just inconsistent. It's kind of up and it's down. But it's still a fun show, and I still do like the characters. If you liked the first couple seasons of Mob Psycho 3, which, honestly, I didn't think I would, given some of the animation style and art style that I've seen, and but people have just referred to it constantly as one of the best modern anime, and I think it has a feel of it, the art. In some places, it feels like an older anime. I think the first season was like 2016, it feels way older than that, and I can dig that at times, but um, that is Mob Psycho 3. It is my number seven of the fall season, and we'll go ahead and move on to my number six. And that number six is probably going to give people fits based on you know how high I have this one, although I think it is pretty well received, and that is Reincarnated as a Sword. Now, this is in that B tier of anime. I think you should absolutely get to it. I think it is one to watch if you are into this type of show. But it's nothing that's going to blow you away or nothing extraordinary. Now this ran for 12 episodes. is done by Studio C2C. And the synopsis reads, Reincarnated as a sentient weapon with memories of his past life, but not his name, a magical sword saves a young beast girl from a life of slavery. Fran, the cat-eared girl becomes his wielder, and wants only to grow stronger, while the sword wants to know why he is here. 
Together, the strange duo's journey has only just begun. The tags here are action, adventure, fantasy, animal characteristics, guilds, isekai, non-human protagonist, person in a strange world, reincarnation, RPG, and it is based on a light novel. This one ran on high dive, and I didn't really know what to expect going into this. Honestly, what ended up happening is I just loved the relationship between the sword, the sentient sword, and Fran. And it's really cool how their relationship develops, and even as something as simple as, you know, he's kind of walking her through this world and kind of helping her out um, with combat skills and everything like that. And later on, we'll see, there's like a scene where he gets a, a sheath for himself. So that's pretty cool that he he wants something where he's not walking around exposed in anymore. Um, it's a very cool twist on it. And I know a lot of people are sick of a Sekai. And I think if you're listening to these season reviews that I do, I watch a lot of Asekai and end up liking a lot of these Asekai that maybe other people don't think should be as high. But I absolutely loved their relationship. I love that Fran is this innocent character, and the sword doesn't take advantage of any of that kind of stuff or go in that direction whatsoever, which is rare, especially for a Sentai Filmworks or High Dive acquired show. I also love some of the cool characters in this, and... The way that they set up the pantheon of gods in this world is very interesting. I won't say any more. I don't want to get into any spoilers or stuff, but um, I think Fran's great. I think the sword character is great. I think all of these characters are really, really good, and the world they build is cool. And that's really all you need in a Sekai is a good world and some good characters and some pretty good action scenes as well. But I don't have a ton more to say on Reincarnated as a Sword, but that is definitely one I like, and that is in that B tier of shows. Next up number f- at number 5 is a continuing series, and this is also in the B tier of shows, and that is Welcome to Demon School Arumakun Season 3. This ran for 21 episodes, and yeah, usually their seasons do run for about 20. Uh, it's done by BN Pictures, and not really a synopsis here, but the tags are Comedy, Shonen, Demons, Monster School, Person in a Strange World, School Life, Supernatural, and Based on Manga. The basic setup of this is you have Aruma whose parents basically put him in terrible situations his entire life. He is thrown into this demon world. He's sold to this demon who is the headmaster of this demon school. And he's essentially thrown in. And these demons do not like humans. They are, you know, rumored to eat humans. He actually, so his grandfather knows it and his grandfather's butler knows it, but they kind of keep it hidden. And he has these unique skills, and this is very much just a comedy show with some action and stuff thrown in, but the cast of characters are so zany and off the wall in this series. I like the way that it continues to develop Arumakun, and he becomes kind of this superhero savior almost through all this stuff, and in the most ridiculous ways as well. You know, he wins the affection of probably the most popular or one of the strongest kids in school, as well as the president of the student council. And just seeing him go through this and his doting grandfather and all the danger he kind of gets himself into and out of throughout going to this school. And I mean, most of this just all revolves around he's trying to fit in at this demon school. And he's having the time of his life, really, because he had a terrible life back with his parents in the human world. This is a third season, so I'm not going to say 
a ton more. This is just a very endearing show that I enjoy. And, you know, it's nothing extraordinary, but I think it's fun if you do like that kind of comedy with still some action thrown in. There's a lot of that here. And the stakes are honestly pretty high. And with 21 episodes, you get a good arc and you get some good story beats and what they're going through. And it's very, um, it's a very fun season. I really enjoyed the competition that goes on in this season in particular, but I won't say much more. Moving up to number four, and we're staying in the B tier here, is Romantic Killer. Romantic Killer ran for 12 episodes, is done by Studio Domerica. And the synopsis reads, High schooler Anzu Hashino has a great life. Every day she plays video games, pigs out on snacks, and pets her beloved cat. But this blissful existence is turned into a confusing mess when a magical creature transports her to an alternative reality, bereft of her favorite things. Now she's stuck with hot guys instead. How can she possibly survive in such an awful world? Anzu must play along in this alternate reality before she can return to her normal life, so she begrudgingly makes friends with Tsukasa. Unfortunately, he happens to be one of the hottest and most popular guys at school, and what's worse, she realizes that he might not even be that bad of a person. The tags here are comedy, romance, shonen, slice of life, and based on a manga, and it is a Netflix show. And I've got to say, this turned me around. I've had a couple of good Netflix shows in a row here with um, Romantic Killer and Uncle From Another World. Before that, I was kind of falling flat on a lot of the stuff Netflix was putting out, but they've uh, they've had a good run for me anyway with these couple of shows. I think first and foremost, you have to know what you're getting into here. This is very much a comedy show, and it's simply like, basically, and the synopsis didn't do a good job of this, but there is this Cupid fairy who comes, and there's this decline in birth rate in Japan, which is a real thing, and these fairies are sent out to work with people who have no romantic interactions or any romantic goals or aspirations, and whip them into shape so they can, you know, reproduce, honestly, in the end of things. So this very basically sets up her life as a dating sim game and takes away, as the synopsis said, her chocolate, her video games, and her cat, and she's not allowed to see those until she's become romantic with someone. And yeah, that's where a lot of the comedy comes in. I think it does have a lot more serious beats than you would think, and it does get into some pretty dark areas as we get towards the end of this season. And I think this one was just a one where I just could not look away from start to finish. It was very addicting. It was very engaging. And I really did like how our main character kind of changed throughout this and the different beats that everyone goes on. Now I'm really hoping there's a second season of this one, because let me tell you where it ends it ends on a pretty big cliffhanger, and or not really a cliffhanger, but some pretty pretty dramatic moment, I would say. And I just absolutely enjoyed this one. It was so much fun, much like Uncle from Another World. These are very similar shows to me, and they were just completely fun from start to finish, even though there might be some darker elements in there and some more serious elements. I think those end up helping them in the end. But um, I would absolutely recommend Romantic Killer. It's very easy to find since it is out on Netflix. And here's hoping for a season two of this. I think they might have announced that there is a season two, but I don't know. 
Either way, I absolutely enjoyed this show, and it is one of the best of the season for sure. Next up is something that's right up there with your boy Kong Ming from a couple seasons ago as my biggest surprise of the year, and that is Akiba Made War. And it's absolutely not what you think before we even get started on this. I mean, the name and the imagery alone would make you think it's one thing, but it's absolutely not. So this ran for 12 episodes, done by Studio PA Works. And the synopsis reads, Akihabara is the center of the universe for the coolest hobbies and quirkiest amusements. In the spring of 1999, bright-eyed Nagomi Wahira moves there with dreams of joining a maid cafe. She quickly dons an apron of Cafe Tan Tokotan, a.k.a. the Pig Hut. But adjusting to life in bustling Akihabara isn't as easy as serving tea and delighting customers. Paired with the dour Ranko, who never seems to smile, Nagomi must do her best to elevate the Pig Hut over all the other maid cafes, vying for the top ranking. So, and I'm going to get into that synopsis a little more, a little better maybe, but the tags are... Action, comedy, cafe, gangs, guns, maids, parody, and original work. And this is streaming on High Dive. So with that synopsis, and I think this is a show that it seems like other people aren't digging as much as I did. And I feel like that's a common theme. But I absolutely love what this show does in certain sections. And again, I would still say this is probably borderline an A-tier show, but still kind of in that B-tier. But uh, Akiba Maid War, you do have these two new maids who are starting here, and you learn that the maids in this world aren't necessarily the same ones in ours. And if you're not aware of it, uh, maids are a big thing in Japan and a big um, part of a lot of their society and culture, at least in anime, as far as that goes. But what we have here, we have all these different rival cafes, but they're all under two different banners of, you know, you've got the Beast cafes, and there's another one, and what we learn is these maids are very violent, and they go to battle, and they go to war, and this show is very violent and very jarring in that sense, but I think what I like most about this is it has a lot of Chanbara touch points uh, thrown in, including the ending theme that is just this kind of beautiful, solemn song. And I love the opening theme as well. I think the opening theme is very cool and does some weird stuff too. And again, that's right up there with your boy Kong Ming. So maybe Sentai is putting together these collection of shows that I really enjoy. I don't know. But I love that it does do that. It feels like an exploitation film at times. It's violent. It's brutal. It does get dark and sinister. And, it, you know, I criticize stuff on Chainsaw Man for that, but I think this does it in a very different way, and it's much more meaningful than the stuff in Chainsaw Man did, at least for me. But yeah, the, the samurai-type stuff, the I mean, there's so many nods in here. It almost feels like a Tarantino film at times. It definitely does ride that like exploitation line, and if you like that kind of stuff, that grindhouse exploitation, um, Chanbara, like samurai-type cinema... This is absolutely something that you need to check out. It's very surprising, and even through all that goofiness and everything, you still manage to care about the characters, and I think it took me a little bit to warm up to the characters and to the show in general, but once I did, I was hooked, and Akiba Made Wars was such a big surprise, such a pleasant surprise, 
and I'm so glad I ended up checking that one out. That sits at my number three of the season. Okay, next up, we're moving into the A tier of show with uh, Blue Lock at my number two. And Blue Lock is another type of uh, darker show, but um, ran for 24 episodes and done by Studio 8-Bit. The synopsis reads, After a disastrous defeat at the 2018 World Cup, Japan's team struggles to regroup. But what's missing? An absolute ace striker who can guide them to win. The Football Association is hell-bent on creating a striker who hungers for goals and thirsts for victory, and who can be the decisive instrument in turning around a losing match. And to do so, they've gathered 300 of Japan's best and brightest youth players, who will emerge to lead the team, and will they be able to out-muscle and out-ego everyone who stands in their way? The tags are action, drama, shonen, sports, soccer, and based on a manga. So this one was kind of surprising too, because I didn't expect it to go in certain directions, and I almost dropped it early on, because I didn't expect this to be some like dark, serious, like shonen anime. <laughs> I expected another uh, soccer and sports type series that we had with Awashi um, that came out in the spring of 2022. But this is completely different than other sports anime. This is very much that action shonen show. I gotta say, over time, it absolutely worked for me. Um, we basically followed this guy who had a tough loss at the beginning of this. And he enters into this, and it's voluntary that these guys are brought in. There's 300 of them, you're told. One of you are going to be able to play on the, you know, the national team when the next World Cup comes around. And they're spending a lot of money on this. This is at this big facility. And they're all kind of ranked from numbers 1 to 100 based on their... Or 1 to 300 based on their skill level. And they do a variety of different competitions that pit them against each other and pit them against other teams. And that's what you have with Blue Lock. And you have some very serious playing here because if you lose, you're banned from being on the national team forever. And these are, you know, all the top players in Japan. And as this goes on, and it goes on for two cores for a full 24 episodes, things really start to unfold, and these competitions get crazy. You meet these very much quirky characters who are all just fighting for their lives and fighting in different competitions, and I love that about this show. And I think there's plenty of times where a player is fighting from the bottom, trying to work their way to the top, and there's so many different twists and turns that happen along the way. So much unlocking potential and unlocking new moves and things like that. Blue Lock is just a wild ride. And yeah, it gets kind of dark and dire at times. But I feel like there's still that sense of triumph that you get with sports anime and that I love. And that's what puts this as like an A-tier show for me. And certainly one of the best of the season. But Blue Lock, if you are just looking for regular sports anime... This might not be it, but the competition angle is there. It's just a little much, it's a little more action-y and more like an action anime than your typical sports anime is, and just be prepared for that if you're going in. But I can absolutely recommend Blue Lock. It's such a great show. It's so, it gets you hooked and you're wanting to see what challenges are next and how they're going to overcome it or if they're going to overcome it because... Unlike with a lot of sports anime, this one gets pretty down and pretty dire at times. But that's my number two. Let's go ahead and move on quickly to my number one. And this one should be no surprise. 
for a lot of people there that like action anime. Um, this is in the S tier. This is almost a perfect season of a show. It is My Hero Academia season six, and it is by far my number one of the season. Uh, ran for 25 episodes, done by Studio Bones. And uh, to give you a brief synopsis, the tags here are basically like action, sci-fi, shonen, superheroes, based on a manga. Um, and that one was on Crunchyroll. Oh, and Blue Lock is also on Crunchyroll. I missed that. But you basically have young Deku, or uh, Midoriya is his name. And we're on season six of this so far, so I'm not going to give a ton of it. But he's basically a quirkless boy. And something happens in his life to change that. And I should say a quirk is basically like a superhero ability that most of the world has now. Just a lot of them don't... Most people have quirks, but not a lot of them, or a high percentage of them, are able to become superheroes and use those to fight and for good. So uh, there's this whole school dedicated to training, and there's several schools, to training the next generation of superheroes, and the one Deku wants to go to is UA. So it just goes through, and there's the number one hero that is named All Might, and he's kind of all-powerful and overpowered. This is just a very brief summary. This is honestly one of the biggest things going in anime right now, and I think it is the best thing going in anime right now. It's just an excellent show. I think season five was down a little bit, and was a little worse than some of the other seasons, but season six, the arcs that we get in this, it just starts you off right from the beginning. And I knew that we knew that it was setting up at the end of season five to something big. They just didn't quite get there. But wow, once this thing gets going, it just never stops and never lets up. There's all kinds of dark twists and turns. There's all kinds of heartbreak, and there's all kinds of triumph in this season. And it's seriously just one of the best shows out there. I love it. I love most of the characters. I think there's a couple characters for sure that cause this show to... They bring the show down. Absolutely. But there's so many other great characters. They do such a good job with having this <laughs> this seemingly exponential cast. I mean, there's so many cast and characters in this. But they all feel distinct, and you hardly ever forget who anyone is, even if you've only seen that person a couple times. They're very memorable. I love this show. Like I said, I think it's one of the best thing that's, things that has happened to anime in the past decade, at least. It's a fantastic show, and it perseveres. It continues to have a great quality to it, even though other shows that started off really well and have been to this caliber haven't been able to maintain momentum. Uh, that is my number one. It is an absolute must-watch if you haven't watched My Hero Academia. Trust me, it might seem stupid to you, it might seem dumb. It did to me at first, too, but it really does pull you in, and it has a great story and uh, great characters, great action, great everything. So I won't sit here and swoon over My Hero Academia anymore, but that is my number one of the fall. Okay, just to wrap up and recap, like I always do, some of the other big things that happened in this series, or this season, sorry. Bleach Thousand Year Blood War. I haven't watched any of Bleach, and I do want to do that at some point, but that's probably a little ways off, so I haven't seen that one. Spy Cross Family Part 2. Didn't care for the first season that well, if you'll recall, back to my other seasonal review. Um, Bochi the Rock, which, honestly, I don't know why I didn't, get into it. Maybe I will someday. I don't know. It's 
maybe it's just the the sense of it being a slice of life. Um, it's also based on a um, four comma manga, which is basically very much short little stories that are put together, mainly comedic. I don't necessarily care for that, but um, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, Stone Ocean Part Three. JoJo's is not my thing. The Eminence and Shadow, which I started, but I just really couldn't get into. To Your Eternity second season, same boat. I started, I liked the first season, could not get into the second season at all. Golden Kamoi season three, not really a fan of that show. I didn't like the first season. And honestly, that's pretty much it for the big ones. There was a new Berserk which that hasn't really been my thing up to this point. I'm trying to see if there's anything else that I dropped off of. I dropped off of Raven in the Inner Palace, of the Inner Palace. Uh, didn't really care for that too much. Did not care for I'm the Villainous, so I'm taming the final boss. Not a huge fan of Tiger and Bunny. There was another Tiger and Bunny season that took place in this one. And yeah, I think that is about it. So... That wraps up the fall season. I want to just really quick, since I've gone through uh, most of 2022, there are still definitely shows that I'll have to get back to. But as it stands right now, I will give you my top 10 of 2022. And my top 10 is comprised of four fall shows, five from the spring season, and one from summer. The highest ranked winter show that I have on my list right now would be at number 12, and that is uh, Demon Slayer Entertainment District, sitting just outside. So fall and spring definitely dominated. Um, at number 10, I have Romantic Killer. At number 9, I have Akiba Maid War. Number 8, Classroom of the Elite 2. Number 7, Kaguya-sama Love is War, Ultra Romantic. Number 6, Blue Lock. Number 5, Ya Boy Kongming. Number 4, Aoashi. Number three, Skeleton Knight in Another World, which is a shocker, I feel like, to most people. But uh, number two, Ascendance of a Bookworm 3. And number one, My Hero Academia Season 6. I think there's so much strength in the top six or seven shows that could rival any other year. But I feel like after that, we kind of have a little bit of a drop-off. And yeah, this year was good. There was a lot of fun stuff, a lot of good shows. I just don't think it was quite as strong as 2021, but still pretty good. So many enjoyable anime that I've been able to check out. And that's going to be a wrap for my 2022 year in review. I was able to complete these finally, and I'm starting to produce and put out some episodes on the 2023 stuff now. And hopefully I'll be getting caught up and we'll be able to get those out pretty timely going forward, at least as timely as I can. But... Uh, so that's going to end this segment, and we will move on to the next segment, and I will catch you guys on the next one. Can you see
Okay, in this segment, I'm going to do a little bit of a quick discussion on the TV show Dark Side of the Ring that airs on Vice. So this is one that I've wanted to get into for the longest time, but just haven't. And recently, I think I went and visited my friend who was talking about it. And um, I got home and I was thinking, you know, maybe I should watch some of this. And I just looked quickly through some of the episodes and one caught my eye in particular, which would have been the, um, well, I'll get, I'll get to that in a minute, but I just wanted to talk about the show because I think it's incredible. And this show uh, debuted on April 10th of 2019. It just finished its fourth season and there are 40 episodes in the series in the now I haven't seen any of season one, but season one was narrated by Dutch Mantel and Nick Foley did an episode as well. But since then, it's been Chris Jericho. And this is a documentary series about professional wrestling. And I would say I'm a lapsed wrestling fan at this point. I got into it when I was growing up in the 90s and then I was probably into it into the maybe the mid 2000s. And then I was into it again when AEW launched and was really into that for a couple years. But I've since fallen off and maybe watch it every once in a while. So I'm not a huge current wrestling fan right now. But I will say if you have any interest in wrestling at all, I think you're going to love it. If you don't have interest, I mean, my friend's wife watches this. Uh, with him and she enjoys it as well because it's just kind of the whole premise of this is it's a documentary series that focuses on the darker side of professional wrestling and it goes into several tragedies and different gaffes and things that were mistakes in the wrestling world and goes into people's careers and things like that and how maybe they had addictions or how maybe they ended up having an early death And it's crazy. The biggest tragedies seem like the ones I was looking at ratings earlier, and the biggest tragedies are the ones that um, seem to draw the crowds and the eyeballs, which, of course, but it's funny, the one that I started with, which was about Rob Black and XPW was actually the one that got the least amount of ratings ever. And that was the one that I was interested in. I was like, this sounds really cool. I mean, they've done episodes on uh, Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth. They've done ones on the Montreal Screwjob. They've done one on Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. You know, some major things like the Road Warriors, uh, Owen Hart, Brian Pillman. They touch on all the big stuff like that. And they also do the little stuff like XPW, which I am fascinated by the smaller promotions that popped up in the 80s and the 90s. And even... Throughout the 2000s and today, there are all these smaller promotions that just pop up. And in the late 80s and the 90s, there seemed to be this hardcore wrestling scene pop up. And XPW was one of those. It was trying it was later 90s. But you had this guy, Rob Black, who basically had a porn company and he wanted to start a wrestling company that would be the West Coast version of ECW or Extreme Championship Wrestling that was based in Philadelphia, which... Uh, 
side note, but if you haven't watched, um, I think on Peacock now, it's probably on Peacock because it used to be on the WWE Network. There is a documentary on ECW and it is incredible and I highly recommend it. And even some of these episodes with some of these wrestlers, you get into deeper stuff with ECW that they didn't necessarily spend a lot of time on in that documentary. But this was trying to be hardcore and extreme, but it seemed like it had even less to work with. And the guy really didn't know what he was doing. So but it did have a lot of big names that ran through it. Anyway, that was fascinating to me. And it was enough to launch me into more. I think I've watched 12 of these now. And I've watched the most recent four of these, which right now you can only probably find season four if you had it. I don't know if it's on demand. It might be on demand. You might be able to catch them on Vice's website, too, if you have a TV provider login. I just had happened to record a few of these during the last four episodes. That's kind of when I got into this and had watched those. But you can catch this on uh, Hulu and Tubi as well. The first three seasons are there, I believe, for each service. And yeah, maybe you want to go in chronological order. Maybe you want to be like me who just jumps around <laughs> and watches random episodes I'm interested in. But I really can't wait to get to the rest. I mean, I've seen 12 of 40, and I really do want to watch all of these because even if it's something that I'm not necessarily familiar with, I think that's the best ones that I'm not familiar with and getting into learning about certain topics or certain wrestlers because this thing goes all the way back. I mean, we're talking about in the most recent season, they did something with um, Abdullah the Butcher, who I think started in like the 50s or maybe the 60s. It's around in there. But you have these older wrestlers, and then you, of course, have the stuff from the 80s. You, of course, have the stuff from the 90s. And even today, there's one on a guy called um, Nick Gage. And I was familiar with Nick Gage through AEW, but watch the one on Nick Gage. Not a... Not particularly my thing. I mean, the guy, the guy is, has a problem <laughs> and I don't, that's not my kind of hardcore wrestling is what Nick Gage does, you know, fighting in a ring in um, a backyard or in a field out in Kansas somewhere with light bulb tubes all around the ring. That's not my kind of uh, hardcore wrestling, but anyway, to each their own, but that one's kind of cool. It had John Moxley on it or um, as you would have known from WWE, Dean Ambrose. But let's see, what else? What are some of my... I'm trying to think of ones that I really enjoyed. So I'm just going to go down the list and see which ones I've watched here. In season two, they started off with the Chris Benoit story. And actually, episode one of that gets into Eddie Guerrero's death as well. And I got to tell you, that one's that one's very emotional for me. Someone who watched these guys growing up, and then you know that tragedy... And just seeing how effective the people were around them. I was getting legitimately emotional watching that particular strand of episodes and or those that double parter episode. And yeah, that's it's very heartbreaking. And a lot of these stories really are because, yeah, some of them do paint these paint wrestling and wrestlers in a negative light. But a lot of them, they're trying to figure out what happened, like what happened with Chris Benoit to make him this way. And I don't think they're justifying what happened, but there's definitely risk and things with wrestling that we never thought about. And you have to think of a lot of the stuff that goes on with wrestling with those guys, you know, going out and partying all the time and taking pain pills and steroids, I'm sure at some point. And 
yeah, these guys are just beating up their bodies and destroying themselves for your entertainment. And I think it gets into the heart of that a lot, but I won't get up on a pulpit or anything there, but there's one on new Jack, which I watched from season two and new Jack is, and yeah, new Jack seems like there's definitely something wrong with that guy. I mean, the guy was legitimately, you know, I'm not going to get into it and spoil any of it, but dude seems unhinged and it's crazy to think of. There were a lot of those people who kind of got carried away and wrestled in wrestling and got unhinged. Same thing was true for Abdullah, the butcher who, seems like he was just not careful with anything. He was unhinged. And honestly, those days, it was kind of like the Wild West in wrestling. And you find out a lot of that, that there wasn't weren't any like rules or standards or anyone trying to keep people as safe. They were just worried about the entertainment for a lot of it. But uh, anyway, so the new Jack one was very interesting. He was also in XPW and ECW. So he was in that XPW episode. Next up I watched was the Brawl for All, WWF Brawl for All which was a prize fighting contest in the WWF at the time where they were, you know, letting these guys, these wrestlers box and really box and hit each other. And it was a complete disaster. It ruined careers and things like that. So that was an interesting one, something that I don't think I ever knew about. And yet a couple of them that I really want to watch are the, the bookend of season two and the beginning of season three. Um, with the Road Warriors and Owen Hart and then the Brian Pillman two-parter that started season three. Really interested to see those ones. But um, I did watch Collision in Korea, which is about the largest wrestling event that ever took place. And it was in North Korea between, you know, New Japan Pro Wrestling and the uh, WCW. And that's pretty intense, too, of like what they had to go through and things like that. And that was just very ill-conceived idea. but. And then as far as season three, I watched The Plane Ride from Hell, which apparently my buddy was telling me got them in a lot of trouble and they seem to get less big names coming to do like the commentary talking head type stuff on these. And I should say, so the parts of these are you've got Chris Jericho narrating and kind of driving the story forward. Then you've got interviews with all these talking heads as you go through different people involved in different aspects of the wrestling community or family members things like that. And then you also have like actual footage. And then my one negative in this, and it makes sense being that it's put on by vice is that they have these terrible kind of shadow figure reenactments. And I think those are pretty bad, but anyway, so that's how this is all kind of set up. But so you had the plane ride from hell, which was about plane ride that took way too long. And the had these WWF, uh, people just kind of going crazy on this plane. I guess it made a lot of people look bad. Feelings were hurt, whatever else. But <laughs> that was a uh, that was an interesting one. Uh, one that I found extremely fascinating was the one on frontier martial arts wrestling, and that really gets into um, Onita, who is one of the biggest names from Japanese wrestling. He's certainly like a hardcore legend and he was running his own brand of like hardcore wrestling over there called uh, frontier martial arts wrestling. Really enjoyed that story. It's also got a lot of tragedies along with it, but yeah, that one's, that one's fascinating. That's one of my favorites. I think 
so far at least. I've got a long way to go, but then we had again Rob Black and Extreme Pro Wrestling. I didn't mention the Nick Gage one that I watched earlier in the season. And then in season four, I've really only watched the latest four, the one on Abdul the Butcher, which was fascinating, Bam Bam Bigelow, which was also fascinating. As someone, you know, I knew who both those guys were, but never really knew a whole lot about them outside of the ring and what happened. And then one of my my favorites here is is the Bash at the Beach 2000. And the Bash at the Beach 2000 focuses on, you know, the budding heads of Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan as well, as they kind of are trying to determine a plan. They're trying to work with, you know, WCW at that time was fascinating. And honestly, another recommendation if you haven't watched. And these are that's a very this is one that's well known, but it came out quite a while ago at this point uh, or the Monday Night Wars where they get into WWF versus WCW and how that all shook out. But Bash the Beach was a huge failure for WCW and a huge black eye. And, you know, they didn't last too much longer after that. But it tells the story of those two creatives clashing and Hulk kind of exercising, doing the Hulk thing and exercising his creative control and all this stuff, you know, which was probably the biggest problem with that company is, you know, Hulk Hogan and the older guys having too much control uh, over what goes on with the programming and their wins and losses and stuff. But and then the last one of the season four was the the world according to Marty Jannetty. And that one is wild. I tell you, Marty Jannetty is seems like he's a pathological liar. Seems like he tells stories all the time. And he's a he was an interesting dude. You know, he teamed with uh, Shawn Michaels for a number of years and yeah, it's Marty Jenny one's pretty wild and pretty out there. But yeah, so I I thoroughly enjoy this series. And I think you will, too. Honestly, if you have any interest in this type of material, these are good documentaries that focus on people's lives. If you have any interest in that at all or wrestling, especially, I think you're going to enjoy these. And like I said, they have wrestlers from all eras. If you want to go learn about you know, the ultimate warrior, you can, if you want to go uh, learn about the fabulous moolah, you can, if you want to go about Randy Savage, or if you want to go newer and learn about, you know, the bash at the beach stuff with WCW, or I think, I don't think they really get too much newer than, than that one, honestly, but it's just really cool to see these stories played out and to get the background and to really learn about some of the to learn about some of the facts behind these tragedies, because there were so many tragedies with professional wrestling, and I'm sure there's going to be even more. There's still a lot of those guys that were alive during the days where they didn't necessarily take care of their bodies and bladed all the time. And, um, you know, in some cases shared blades and yeah, it's, it's just insane, but I really like dark side of the ring. I'd highly recommend it. It seems like I saw they did a couple of spinoffs with, dark side of the nineties and dark side of the two thousands. I can't, I don't, I don't know if those would be any good or not, but if you're into something else, if you do like these, they do have those ones. I haven't checked out any of that, but yeah, that's my spiel on dark side of the ring. And it comes highly recommended from me, especially even if you're just a documentary fan and these are 40 minute episodes, I should add. So a little long, but still not too bad to get through. They're very entertaining. And you honestly, they fly by pretty quickly. 
All right. Well, let's go ahead with that out of the way and get on to the next segment. Hello, and I'm back here to cover another one of these anniversaries. So I did this earlier with Night of the Living Dead this year, and seeing as Dawn of the Dead had an anniversary as well, its 45th anniversary in fact, I thought it would be good to cover that one, and I'm kind of fascinated with the history and the stories behind this one, and how Argento got involved and all that, so... I really wanted to dig into it. So on this, just like the Night of the Living Dead one, I will be digging into the background and history of Dawn of the Dead. And then I will be discussing my thoughts on the movie as well as how I think it impacted the future of horror movies or impact the industry or what kind of an impact it's left and then wrap up the segment. But let's go ahead and dive into some of the background on Dawn of the Dead. So in 1974, Mark Mason, whose development company managed the Monroeville Mall, invited his friend George A. Romero to come take a tour of the mall. He showed Romero all the hidden areas, and even joked that if an emergency ever occurred, someone could survive in this mall. That provided Romero the inspiration he needed for his follow-up to Night of the Living Dead ten years earlier. Or, you know, at the point of release, it would have been ten years earlier, I guess. As Romero began work on the screenplay, he started looking for investors for the film along with his producer, Richard P. Rubenstein. Unfortunately, they couldn't find any domestic investors. But when Dario Argento caught wind of the sequel's development he offered to find financing in exchange for the international distribution rights. Argento was a big fan of Night of the Living Dead and was excited to be involved with the sequel. Argento invited Romero to Rome to provide a change of scenery while he was writing and to discuss how the script was developing. Romero got extra funding from Mason's development company and was allowed to use the Monroeville Mall to shoot in. 
So a couple of notes here. First of all, most people know I'm a huge Argento fan. So to know that he was involved in this is great for me. And also the Monroeville Mall, I would say, and I've been there several times, I would say it's probably actually more dangerous in real life than it would be, you know, in this movie. I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying, if you go and visit the Monroeville Mall, don't do so at night. Principal photography began on the film on November 13th, 1977, under the title of Dawn of the Living Dead. They were filming at a shopping mall during the busy holiday season and had to adjust their filming accordingly. They filmed nightly between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. while the mall was closed. The decision was made in December to not remove and replace the Christmas decorations every night to film, so they took a three-week break of filming until January 3rd of 1978 to avoid extra work or continuity errors, which I I gotta agree with you, I wouldn't want to take down and put that stuff back up every single night you're filming, so yeah, it makes sense to postpone a little bit. Romero would work on editing the already filmed material during the break. Most of the movie was filmed in the mall, but there were a few exceptions. The hideout at the top of the mall, as well as the elevator shaft, were built at Romero's production company, The Latent Image. There also wasn't a gun store in the mall, so they used Firearms Unlimited, which was located in the East Liberty district of the city. Principal photography wrapped in February, and Romero got back to work on editing the film. Romero shot from a lot of angles while the filming to give him a large number of options when putting the film together. He could stitch together different angles and scenes to determine what would work best. Due to the large amount of material they filmed, several of the international versions are said to feel like a different film in some cases, at least as far as the tone is concerned. So, you know, they had so many different angles and so much material to work with that, and I saw this upon my rewatch and I'll get into the version I watched in a little bit, but there was just so much material to work with that you could form several like movies that felt very different. An alternate ending was initially planned where the Peter character shot himself and the Francine character allowed her head to be chopped off by the helicopter blades. The film would end on the helicopter blades slowly stopping, indicating that the helicopter wouldn't have made it far. None of this was filmed, but the head prop that was meant to be used was instead repurposed during the beginning of the film as a man's head exploding from being shot by a shotgun. Tom Savini was in charge of the special effects on the film. This was the very first film that he got to work on the special effects for. He was asked to work on Night of the Living Dead, but was drafted into the Vietnam War before he could. Savini worked with a crew of eight one of which was Joseph Pilato, who would go on to play the villain, Captain Henry Rhodes, in Day of the Dead. Savini's crew was responsible for applying the gray zombie makeup to between 200 and 300 extras every weekend that they filmed. So that seems like a ton of work for just, you know, the eight of them. Most zombies had basic blue or gray makeup added to their faces. Some of those that got closer to the camera had extra time spent on theirs. Savini and Romero had a difference of opinion on the blood used in the film. Savini wanted to use the more realistic blood made by 3M, 
but Romero wanted to keep a more fluorescent blood style because it added to the comic book feel of the movie. And I have to think that Argento would be in favor of Romero's option here as well. In the original theatrical version of the film, music was used from the DeWolf Music Library. For the international cut, Argento had Goblin compose the score. Three of these pieces were used by Romero in the theatrical cut of the film. Romero quickly threw together a 139-minute version of the film to show at Cannes in 1978. This has since been referred to as the extended cut. Uh, This version will be cut down again to 126 minutes for the theatrical version. The U.S. theatrical version received an X rating, but Romero and the film's producer decided to distribute it unrated to have a higher chance of commercial success. United Film Distribution Company were the ones who stepped up to distribute the film domestically. They tried twice to get the film released in Australia, once with Romero's cut in 1978, and again with Argento's cut in 1979. They would finally get an R18 plus rating there in 1980, but had to cut six minutes from Romero's cut. United Artists distributed the film in Australia. Argento had full rights to the film in non-English-speaking territories. His cut of the film came in at 119 minutes. The film is said to move at a much faster pace than Romero's. In addition to the soundtrack changes, Argento also removed some scenes of exposition. And, you know, that makes sense if you know Argento movies. He also added additional lines and scenes of gore not added in Romero's version. Now, I haven't seen this version of the film, so that's why I say, you know, it's said to move at a much faster pace, but um, it would be interesting to watch that one day. It was released under several various titles across Europe. In Italy, it was Zombie, Dawn of the Living Dead, and that is uh, Z-O-M-B-I, and of course, that's where we get Zombie 2 that came out from Fulci. Uh, In France, it was Zombie Twilight of the Living Dead, which I think is a pretty cool title. Uh, In Spain, it was Zombie, Return of the Living Dead. In the Netherlands, it was In the Grip of the Zombies, which is interesting. In Denmark, it was Zombie, The Morning of Horrors, which I also like. And finally, in Germany, it was simply released as Zombie, with an E at the end. Dawn of the Dead was a success internationally and even won the Golden Screen Award in West Germany, which is awarded when a film has 3 million or more ticket sales within the first year and a half of release. So this was a very successful film. I think this is the one movie that uh, Romero made his money on, at least back then. The international cut of the film debuted in Turin, Italy on September 1st, 1978. Same version released in Japan on March 27th of 1979 and topped their weekend box office. So this thing was a hit around the world. The U.S. cut would finally be shown off at the USA Film Festival in Dallas, Texas on April 7th, 1979. It was Roger Ebert who selected the film for the event which is, you know, crazy to think of. A weekend later, United Film Distribution showed the film in 17 theaters across the Pittsburgh area, 
and it would have a wider rollout over the next couple of months, including a premiere in New York on 420 and one in Los Angeles on 511. During the marketing campaign for the film, it was referred to as the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It did well at the box office, earning $16 million domestically. It's claimed that the film made $49.9 million internationally, so it cleaned up at the international box office, really, um, and that would come to a worldwide total of $66 million. That's the highest of any of the films in the Dead series. So that's why I was saying he kind of made his money back on this. If you listen to the 1985 episode, you know that he didn't do very well in the box office with Day of the Dead. And as we know, there were major problems with Night of the Living Dead with copyright stuff. So this was the one he actually made his money on. Let's hear from Roger Ebert on this one. He loved the film and gave it four out of four stars. He said it was one of the best horror films ever made. Not all of the critics liked it, though. New York Times critic Janet Maslin apparently walked out after 15 minutes due to the gore and violence. The Today Show's Gene Shalit dubbed it as Yawn of the Living Dead, which I don't know where you get that from, but... And the final note I have here is, of course, a remake of the film was released in 2004. It was the directorial debut of Zack Snyder and was written by James Gunn. So that is all the history and notes that I have on Dawn of the Dead. I want to get into talking about the movie a little bit. So it was directed by George A. Romero. And, of course, the tagline is, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. And I absolutely love that line. The synopsis reads, during an ever-growing epidemic of zombies that have risen from the dead, two Philadelphia SWAT team members, a traffic reporter, and his television executive girlfriend seek refuge in a secluded shopping mall. Now, I will say I absolutely love this movie. Um, I think I talked about it recently, maybe when I talked about Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead. I recently, last year I rewatched Day of the Dead and came way up on it from what I thought that I liked about it the first time. I was, you know, way higher on it this time is what I want to say. Dawn of the Dead, similar thing. I was much higher on it than I had remembered. I liked it a lot more than I remembered liking it. And this time around... I watched the, it was like a two and a half hour cut that I found on YouTube. I wasn't at home, so I couldn't watch the Blu-ray on this one. And I just wanted to check it out. And it popped up with this, I think it was the extended cut is what it was called. And I have to say, I loved seeing this extended cut. There were definitely several scenes, especially at the beginning, that I don't remember ever seeing, so I think they were new. Um, a lot of it was dialogue and exposition and build-up, and like in the TV station, I think they added a lot to those scenes. I think they added a lot to the SWAT uh, sequences there at the beginning. It just seemed like there was a lot more exposition and plot points and telling you how they got to where they were and giving a little background on the characters. And I absolutely loved that. Um, I was in a trance for the first, you know, hour of this extended cut or something, just thinking to myself how good it was and how much I was enjoying myself. 
I have to say, like, the characters in this movie are great because none of them are perfect. None of them are really purely good. I mean, and you can look back at Night of the Living Dead and say the same thing, you know. Even with someone like Ben, he was constantly, you know, at odds with Mr. Cooper and they were constantly going at it. But there's no, like, black and white good characters. Like, they all have their ups and downs in this one, but... I think the cast is incredible. Ken Foray plays a great character here. I think they all do. I mean, David Emge as uh, Steven is really good. Uh, Scott as Roger is really good. And um, Galen Ross as Fran here, really good. They're all, the main cast are all awesome. And then of course you have the, you know, they're, I love the progression of this because we have the and it was something I talked about in Day of the Living or in the Night of the Living Dead episode was how they had TV broadcast and interviews and all that stuff. And that's back here. And you really do get to see what's going on in this world. I mean, we open up in a TV station where they're debating the morality of putting your dead to rest or just, you know, removing their head, decapitating them, make sure they don't come back. That's the big fight that's going on in the beginning of this. And you have to sympathize with what's going on. It's very much the science versus religion debate that we still see play out now. And we get later shots, you know, when they finally get a TV and a radio and they're constantly broadcasting. And then at some point, and I'll um, give a little bit of a spoiler warning here. These are going to be mild spoilers. I don't think I'm going to go into full out spoilers on this. But I will say that at one point... Uh, they do get a TV set and radio and they learn, you know, at some point they've stopped broadcasting. So there's no more of that. You're just kind of on your own. And that's the progression. There's so many people around and it seems like they're cleaning it up at the end of the night of the living dead. And then you get to dawn of the dead and things have just progressed so much worse and people are trying to escape the cities. Um, you've got police officers going rogue. You've got these TV station people going rogue and everyone's leaving and they're getting out of here. Um, we get word that the national broadcasting system is taking over from the local TV stations, which is really cool to think about that. You get the the guy later in the film that's on TV with the eye patch, which I love. But the amount of, you know, at this point, it's just kind of feeling hopeless and it's feeling like they're not going to win this battle. I mean, you've got several different groups here. You've got the mostly um, minority group that is holed up in the apartment building in the opening scenes where, you know, we have the SWAT raid with, with Roger and Peter and you get to see like what the conditions they're living in. And because they refuse to hand over their dead, there's just a room full of dead around here that are coming back to life. And it's a very intense sequence. And we get to see how the police are kind of at odds with each other. And everything's kind of breaking down. And then we get their little group of four people who escape and kind of run. There's another group of SWAT officers in this version that are leaving by boat to get out of the city. And these guys, of course, settle on the Monroeville Mall after flying around for a while. So they're coming from Philadelphia and moving west. But um, they settle down there and they kind of build their own society for themselves. They clean up the mall. You know, they can go to the stores and get about anything they want. And you get that big anti-consumer push in this film. And we get it several times. And it, and it makes sense at the time when it's coming up. I think even Romero was maybe a tiny bit ahead of his time with this. But 
with the malls coming through and kind of closing down small businesses. And then we see this happen all throughout history and things like Amazon and uh, big, you know, box retailers and all that closing down the smaller stores. But you would get it full on in the 80s when consumerism was pretty much at its peak uh, for that around that time period. Um, we get things like the stuff and all that. But I think Romero was very much uh, driving that point home here. And, you know, I think he hits it pretty well. Uh, I would say the only scenes I really don't like in the middle of this film, because I was completely enthralled for the first hour um, when they get into some of the doldrums of the mall, there are a few little bits of like more comedic scenes and things like that. I don't really like, but they do such a good job of showing how these characters are dealing with being stuck in this mall and being stuck with all these zombies around and how it's affecting their psyches and how it's affecting their personalities and how it's causing one character to kind of break down. I mean, he has kind of snaps in the middle of this and something happens that we know that character's not going to recover from. And it's just a bleak film, but it's also such like a comfort watch for me. It's so bleak. It's so down and dour, but there's still so many incredible moments. And, you know, the characters have to come through realizations. I mean, Steven has a laundry list of issues he's going through, not least of which is his girlfriend is pregnant. So you have to deal with that, too. I mean, I think the drama points are hit so well in this movie. But on top of that, you still have all the violence and the blood and the guts and the gore and all of that as well. And it's shocking almost. I mean, you could say by the time we get to Day of the Dead, it's almost getting into the campy territory. But I think it hits the right blend to still be very serious and shocking in this movie. And I would say that that is one big thing, big influence that this has had on films is Savini really brought the gore here and really would revolutionize what was going to happen with gore going forward. And we would see in the 80s, uh, films started to get bloodier and more violent and everything like that. And I think that really can be traced back to this movie because this is a very shocking movie. I mean, you think something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is bloody and shocking, but it's not really. I mean, it's very bloodless. It's disturbing and violent, but this takes that gore and pushes it to a new level and something I don't think we've really seen before. And he was pushing the boundaries with Night of the Living Dead 2, and I think he would push the boundaries with Day of the Dead later. But I think that's a lasting effect this movie's had. But it's just so good. I mean, you have to put yourself in their shoes and think about how you would feel if you were stuck in one of these places and you couldn't move and you couldn't go anywhere and you're just here with these same people and you have to get through, you know, work through your hardships. And it's not like they were all great friends before. I mean, you get the sense that uh, Fran and Steven aren't necessarily, you know, they bicker a lot, which couples do and they're in a stressful situation, but uh, you know, Peter and Roger kind of just meet up with each other and Roger's supposed to be uh, Steven's friend, but we don't know the extent of that. It doesn't seem like they're, you know, best friends or anything like that. But I love how it plays with the drama of the situation. Um, we, of course, get the biker gang later that we know this roving biker gang that Tom Savini is part of. And that's another aspect of this. You know, you have regular normal people trying to live their lives and survive and just make it through. 
And then you have people that are fully adapting to the scenario and they're adapting in their own way and they're living it up and they're trying to pillage and take whatever they can. So you just have all these different groups and you just see society breaking down. And it's very sad and it's very painful to watch in this movie. But I think this trilogy gives a very real, very grounded scenario of how society can collapse under something like this. It's incredible. It's brilliant. It's one of the best horror movies I think that's ever made. Um, I have problems with it here and there, but I think honestly, this extended cut uh, takes a little bit of that away. And it's nice hearing the couple goblin songs also sprinkled throughout. I would say the makeup is one of the worst parts of this movie. I think the makeup's pretty bad. It does have a vibe and a feel to it just because it is that classic and you kind of, you know, are used to that. And it's very much something that is known for. But yeah, you gotta you gotta think at some point maybe the makeup was a bad choice. Maybe they should have went with something else. But hey, I really enjoy this film. There's very few nitpicks I have with it. I'm glad I rewatched it. And I'm glad I watched the extended cut. I don't know if my Blu-ray has that, but I definitely need to check that out in the future and see if I can get one with that because I really liked that cut of the film. And it's sad that you can't watch this streaming except on YouTube, which the quality is not going to be Blu-ray caliber. It's not like if it was on Shutter or something like that, which I hate to say that even because sometimes you don't get great quality stuff on any streaming service. But yeah, Dawn of the Dead is an absolute classic. It is a behemoth of a film. It's so good, but so bleak from start to finish, honestly. I would say, you know, I do like the horror elements, but that stuff at the beginning of the film is so captivating and so enthralling to me that I would say that's almost better than when they get to the mall and there are the the horror moments. But um, I would give this, if I have to give it a score, I'd say it's a 9.5 out of 10. I, I almost want to give it a 10, but I'm a little hesitant. I think it's an incredible movie. I think if you haven't seen it, you absolutely need to see this whole trilogy because I think it's very strong. And I think this is the, now that I'm reflecting on it, this is definitely the best of the trilogy. Uh, Day of the Dead is close for me. I really like that. I think I just like Romero's style of filmmaking, honestly. And especially in these films, when we get to see the slow progression of how society declines, like I said, but. Dawn of the Dead is extremely influential and is stands up there as one of the classics, so it absolutely deserved to be looked at on its 45th anniversary. Happy anniversary to you, and rest in peace, George A. Romero. I think you really put out some, some of the most important films in the horror genre and definitely are the father of modern zombies. So, yeah, it's so important in so many different ways. But I'm going to wrap up talking about Dawn of the Dead. And really, I mean, this year I've talked about the anniversaries of this and night. And I got to talk about day a little bit on the 1985 episode. So I've got to talk about all the original trilogy. Um, I do like Land of the Dead. So maybe that one will get an anniversary episode or something in the future. But hey, I uh, really love Dawn of the Dead. I think it's a very important movie. And once again, Happy anniversary, and go ahead and move on to the next segment of the show. Ah! 
Okay, so in this segment, I wanted to start my filmography overview of one of my, I guess I'd say favorite directors. I do like a good portion of his um, his movies, and I wouldn't say I've seen everything. And maybe, you know, the best of the best doesn't hold up there with some of the other great directors, but I do love this director and his movies. So I wanted to start doing these little director filmography things, and um, I'm going to start with this one and cover his first two films, and this is Alex de la Iglesia. And I'm going to try to give as much background. I'm not going to have anything as detailed as like the Hitchcock episodes or anything like that, because there's just so much more known about him. But I am going to try to cover what I can about the director and his life, and then also cover background and details on the movies, as well as briefly talking about each movie. So with this one, we're going to go ahead and get started here. De La Iglesia graduated from the University of Desto with a philosophy degree. He began drawing comics and magazines and fanzines. His inspirations were Stan Lee and Alex Raymond, who was the creator of Flash Gordon. He got his start in the film industry by serving as art director in the short film Mama by Pablo Berger. And that was in 1988. In 1991, he was also art director on Enrique Urbizu's feature-length film Todo por la Pasta, or Anything for Bread. De La Iglesia's first short film was filmed in 1991 under the title of Mirandas Asesina. It made its way to Pedro Almodovar, who was impressed and decided to help produce De La Iglesia's debut feature film, Accio Mutante, or Mutant Action, through his production company, El Desio. So yeah, this is the first film here that I'm going to cover is uh, Mutant Action in the translated English. Now, both of these I'm covering have recently in the last few years received Blu-ray releases from Severin, and they're both great. I own both of them, and I hope they continue to go through De La Iglesia's catalog, although I don't know if they will. But yeah, the first thing I want to say before I get into this is not all of his films are going to be horror, and that's why I'm kind of doing this on the Screaming Chronicles episodes. He has done a decent amount of horror movies, but he's also done ones that definitely can't be considered that and this is going to be one of them. So in this one in particularly, as far as the background on it, uh, Ramon Berea was set to play the lead in this one, 
and it was even named after him. The character was. However, the producers wanted a more well-known actor, so Antonio Rosines was cast. Brea would have to settle for the role of the blind old man. So, that sucks, but <laughs> what are you going to do? The film was shot in Arandio Biscay. The film is set in the near future, which was 2012 to be exact. Uh, due to this, they used as the form of currency in the film the European Currency Unit. You know, and the European Currency Unit was set to replace many currencies within the European Union soon. However, in 2002, by the time this actually came to fruition, the ECU was renamed to the Euro. A little bit of forward thinking there with De La Iglesia. This film did come out in you know, 1993, but anyway. The Stockholm Syndrome developed by Patricia in the film was based on the 1974 real-life case of Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army and ended up even participating in some of their crimes. And then the priest robot in the film was actually modeled after Alex de la Iglesia. It premiered in Bilbao and Madrid on February 3rd of 1993. So to set this one up a little bit, came out in 93, ran for 94 minutes, and the synopsis reads, Waging war against all things glamorous and beautiful, crippled terrorist Axiom Mutante plot a series of attacks on society's elite and attempt the kidnapping of a wealthy socialite at her elaborate wedding reception. So this is probably one that a lot of people haven't even heard of. Um, I know his next film that we're going to be talking about has been proliferated, and I think that one was even on Joe Bob's so that probably had a lot to do with it. This is one that I wanted to check out for a while, and I just couldn't find a good way to see it. And then, lo and behold, on the film's 30th anniversary earlier this year, Severin dropped it on Blu-ray. And I picked that up, and I definitely talked about this one on the last Phantom Video episode, which would have been back in March. But this was my choice for the March release. And yeah, I I didn't know what to expect going into this one. And I'll tell you, it's a little jarring and a little off-putting. Nathan and I recently covered 1993. I mean, that's been a couple months ago now. Or, you know, I don't know. Anyway, it was July, but we covered 1993 and the horror movies of that year. And something like Freaked, which is a dumb comedy, came to mind. And I think the humor falls in line with being, you know, that dumb and absurd in this film. So it's not going to be for everyone. And honestly, the opening of it, I wasn't necessarily into. But I think as it goes along... And as you get to see the characters, you know, Ramon and Alex and Patricia in this one, I really did start to like them, you know. And one note I did not mention is um, Alex Angulo would play Alex in the film, and he would go on to be in the next film as the uh, Catholic priest in Day of the Beast. And I think he's pretty good here. He plays like a Siamese twin. He's connected to his brother. And he really is wanting to get with this Patricia girl and <laughs> who they kidnap. And it's this movie is just completely absurd. You know, they staple her mouth shut so she can't speak and they're traveling on this ship. And 
you know, I don't want to get too much into the plot details, but yeah, this is just a terrorist organization and anything they do doesn't really turn out the way it's supposed to do. They're kind of bumbling and not necessarily the most competent of terrorist groups, but you know, there's something about this movie that really kind of endears itself to you. It is that Alex de la Iglesia humor cranked up probably to 11 because this was early on in his career. doesn't have any of the subtlety that he would achieve with the day of the beast just a little bit later, but it's a weird oddity. And I don't know for a certain person, this one's going to make an impact. I think one interesting thing is it opens with the, uh, Mission Impossible theme music. And, you know, from the show, this was before the the movie had came out. And that's very interesting to hear that because I feel like a few years later, if they used that, they would have been, you know, had legal action pushed them into oblivion. But it is still there in the print of the film. I mean, it's right there for you to hear. And that's an interesting note on this. But yeah, I I don't know who to recommend this to, but it starts out and it's kind of we have three different sections of this film we have you know because they're holding her for ransom and you've got the first section where the boss is getting out of jail and they're setting up this scheme you're kind of introduced to these characters they're setting up this scheme to you know kidnap this rich girl and that is set you know on earth and then you get the next section or act in a spaceship. And then lastly, it takes place on the planet where they're supposed to rendezvous and the thing gets very crazy near the end. Yeah, I really enjoy this one. I can't recommend it to a lot of people. I feel like it's just not going to stick myself. I would come in around the, I don't know, probably like the 7.5 range. I really like this one, but again, I, you have to go in knowing your taste and enter at your own risk. Maybe watch a trailer or something before you get into it. But yeah, if you do enjoy this one, that Severin release is pretty great. It's got a lot of interviews with De La Iglesia and other people around the film, which I don't even think the Day of the Beast release has anything with De La Iglesia. So it's an interesting first stab at a film and I actually find it pretty enjoyable myself, but there's also a lot of things that are kind of off putting. So that's a good one though. I think it's well acted for what it is because it's a debut with a lot of unknown actors or at least unknown to me. And um, yeah, that is Axio Mutante or mutant action. And I should say, if you're looking for that one, you can uh, rent it on Amazon video or YouTube. Okay, The Day of the Beast was the film that De La Iglesia was going to tackle next. The film was an 80% Spanish and 20% Italian co-production. Pedro Almodovar was asked to produce the film after producing Axiom Mutante, but he declined because he said his superstitions wouldn't let him be involved with a movie about the devil. However, several years later, that wouldn't stop him from producing The Devil's Backbone, which honestly, (laughs) you know, I saw this fact and it's kind of a hollow argument because The Devil's Backbone doesn't really have anything to do with the devil. It's (laughs) but it does have it in its name. So anyway. The film was written by and bear with me here, Jorge Guerra Cachivaria, 
And yeah, that that one's a mouthful, but I hope hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad. Who would go on to write most of De La Iglesia's films. There was a claim that the story plagiarized the novel La Luz by Tomas Cuevas, but that was rejected in court, and there's never been any conclusive evidence to prove it. Javier Bardem was offered the role of Jose Maria, which I can't imagine Javier Bardem, even early Javier Bardem, playing that role. I mean, I really can't imagine anyone except Segura playing that role. But he was offered, among other actors, and turned it down. They all turned it down. Producer Andres Vicente Gomez suggested Segura, who was an unknown and was one of De La Iglesia's friends at the time, because he thought he could play the role well. De La Iglesia initially said no, but ended up casting Segura later, and I think it was a great choice. Actor Jose Sancho was set to play the role of Cavan, but after the film turned into an Italian co-production, they insisted that an Italian actor play the role, and honestly, I've got no qualms with any of the cast in this film because I think it's an incredible cast, but we can get to that in a minute. Satan in this film was played in its human form by actor, stuntman, and gunsmith for the film, Ignacio Carreno. The demonic form was played by a man without legs named Higenio Barbaro. The rituals that were used in this film are actual Satanist rituals that weren't changed at all during the filming. So this one's getting close to the <laughs> close to the vest a little bit. The crew, and more specifically Alex de la Iglesia, received several death threats from Satanists during filming. So typically, you know, it's the church that's coming after you for these things. But in this case in point, it is the Satanists who are coming after de la Iglesia. I, for one, would be very scared of that. But uh, <laughs> well, any death threats, I mean, that's just crazy. But uh, yeah, anyway. The fountain in the last shot depicting the fallen angel is the only public tribute to Satan in the world. And get this, it sits exactly 666 meters above sea level. So that's that's a pretty crazy piece of trivia. I didn't know about this statue at all. But yeah, I don't think that's really a spoiler. Just there is a statue in the last scene. Film had a budget of around the equivalent of two million U.S. dollars at the time. They released a soundtrack for the film in Spain and Korea, and featured among others Pantera, Ministry, and Sugar Ray. So, seems like a pretty eclectic soundtrack. The film opened in Spanish theaters on October twentieth of nineteen ninety-five, and grossed four million, or what would the equivalent would be. Uh, they didn't use this currency at the time, but it would be 4,367,000 euro. The film established De La Iglesia as one of Spain's most important directors. He would go on to win six Goya Awards for the film, including Best Director. I'm not too familiar with the Goya Awards, but I think it is similar to what the Oscars of Spanish cinema would be. The film also launched the career of Santiago Segura, for good reason, and made him one of Spain's well-known, most well-known actors. And the film had a little bit of success in the U.S., and right on the back of this success, De La Iglesia sold the rights to a U.S. remake that he would be set to direct, 
And he also was slated in as the director of Alien Resurrection after this film released. But they would go with the French director, Jean-Pierre Jeannette. And you could see what they were going for. They were trying to take a kind of an eclectic European director to, to take on this. But yeah, that's the direction they ended up going. And De La Iglesia did not do Alien Resurrection. And I think that probably set his career path because he could have went on to do Alien Resurrection. Maybe it was better. I don't know. Who knows if it would have been better or worse. I'm not a huge fan of Alien Resurrection as it is. If it was just as bad, I mean, I think Jeanette went right back to making kind of art house films. So I'm I'm glad that De La Iglesia went the direction he did, and I'm hoping he's been able to make a decent living off of it. But I think he probably is if he's still going after all these years. But Okay, let's set up this film. The Spanish title is El Dia de la Bestia, and The Day of the Beast runs for 103 minutes. The synopsis reads, Bent on committing as many sins as possible to avert the birth of the beast, a Catholic priest teams with a black metal aficionado and an Italian connoisseur of the occult. Now he must become an unrelenting sinner. Is there still hope? So this is... To be frank, one of my favorite horror films, and I think one of the best horror films, probably one of the most underrated to a point. I was really into tracking this one down at some point, and this was well before it was on Shudder, which I don't think it's on Shudder anymore. You can catch it on the Arrow video player, um, Voodoo, uh, for free, and Tubi, and you can rent it as well, but... The Day of the Beast was one that I searched out for years and tried to find through you know, alternative means and searching everywhere for it. When I finally found it, I was very impressed. And I think my appreciation for the film has only gone up over the years. I think you have the perfect casting. I think Alex Angulio as Angel is excellent. I think Armando de Raza as Professor Cavan is great. And of course, Santiago Segura just fits into this as Jose Maria. And then you, of course, would have a mainstay of De La Iglesia's films with Terry L. Pavez, who plays uh, Jose Maria's mother in this one. And this is a dark black comedy. I mean, there is <laughs> you you wouldn't even know the humor is so dry, but it's really good. I think this is the best balance for De La Iglesia of the horror and the um, kind of dry humor, the sense of humor. But I love this. It's a story of a priest who's committing sins because he thinks it's going to get him closer to Satan as if he's going to fool Satan. That's the thing is if you're you're thinking of this, it's flawed from the start, because if you're thinking of beings who see everything, if you're thinking of God and Satan who see everything, why would you think you'd be able to sin with him knowing full well uh, what you're doing? But anyway, I think it's great that he's going around committing these sins. He goes into a metal store because he thinks he'll receive a message if he plays a record backwards or something. He's very naive about the world and very much goes about it in the way someone who's not uh, street smart, for lack of a better word, would go about it. Uh, but this, uh, 
oh, this and, you know, that's where he first meets Jose Maria and is sent to this hostel to stay where Jose Maria's mother works at. And also you have Mina, who's played by uh, Nathalie Sasana. And she is excellent in this as well, especially when Angulo's character asks her about um, a certain aspect of her life, I think is it's a very funny scene. But yeah, this this one's just great from start to finish. It's captivating. I don't think it ever gives you a chance to lose interest with it. It's just set piece after set piece, and it's excellent. You know, you you think maybe you know he's starting off just walking through. Well, you start off with this open where he's talking to another priest, and then when he gets to Madrid, that's where things start to get a little crazy. And he's committing all these crimes and which is excellent to watch, by the way. And then again, when he gets to the hostel, you've got it set up with. When he gets to the hostel, you think it's going to like calm down for a bit. He's going to settle in. But then you get this eccentric cast of characters, including Jose Maria's uh, grandpa, I believe, who just sits there naked. And (laughs) it's excellent in that sense. You know, when they meet Professor Coven, I think the film gets cranked up even another notch. And that scene in his home is incredible from start to finish. Yeah, this this movie is a ride. And if you haven't seen it, I can't recommend you see this one enough. I mean, I love The Day of the Beast. Like I said, as soon as I was able to find it and seek it out, I fell in love with it. And... Man, I just don't know. I can't see people not liking this film. I mean, it's a little eclectic, a little eccentric, but it's just so good to me anyway. And I think that's reflected by, I'm looking at Letterboxd, it has a 3.7. That's very good for a horror movie. And I might be a little biased because De La Iglesia is one of my favorite directors. I just think this film is a classic that's just not talked about at all, pretty much. And it's not brought to the attention of people. If you haven't seen The Day of the Beast, you absolutely need to see this one. If you need to fit it into some kind of agenda, you know, put it on as a Christmas horror movie because it does take place on Christmas Eve. Anyway, I could sit here and go on for hours and hours about The Day of the Beast. Like I said, the casting is incredible. All these actors do such a great job. The story, I think, is very good from start to finish. I think it's uh, unique enough, and I haven't read that novel, Lelouz, to uh, know if it plagiarized off that or not. But all I can say is what I see is a very original take on the let's avert the Antichrist type thing. And honestly, I think it subverts expectations at every step of the way. But the filmmaking here is excellent. I think. I don't I have problems finding problems with this film. I love it. I think there's still maybe some minor gripes. And again, the Severin Blu-ray is out there. You definitely need to pick that up. I'm so glad that it's so much easier to watch this thing and it's so much more accessible than when I was trying to find it. But it is well worth watching if you haven't. And I would give this thing a 9.5 out of 10 and it's truly one of my favorite movies and is my favorite of uh, De La Iglesia's filmography. 
So that's going to do it for this section on De La Glacia. I'll be back next time to absolutely not talk about Perdita Durango. <laughs> no, I will. I will touch briefly on Perdita Durango for sure, but I'm mostly focusing on the genre efforts, which Perdita Durango does fall into um, of De La Glacia. So next time there's a Chronicles episode, look out for that. In closing on this one, yeah, next time up, it will be a regular like horror episode. So I'll be back with more Hitchcock and, you know, hopefully talking Vertigo with Nathan Burlewall and that. Um, I will have the beginning of my Amityville Horror franchise review with the original. And as far as what else, I'm not sure what else you can look forward to. I might be doing an anniversary episode. Uh, I might be doing an anniversary talk on that one like I did with Dawn of the Dead here because we're getting close to the end of the year and I need to get these anniversary episodes in. So stay tuned on that. I'll probably do maybe a, you know, another classic monster rankings to continue on that because I haven't done that one in a couple episodes. But yeah, that's what to look forward to. And then I'll have a Screaming Chronicles episode at the end of September and then it's going to be October, and I've got some big plans set up for October. Um, I'm really trying to put together a a solid program for for that month. So hang tight on that. I'll release some details on that in the coming weeks, probably on the next episode. But with all that being said, you can follow the podcast over on Instagram and Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can go over and join the public Facebook group at Screaming Through the Ages. You can send an email to ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. And of course, I would always appreciate it if you would review this on the podcast service of your choice. Tell your friends if you're enjoying this show. And um, yeah, give me feedback on what you're liking and not liking. Anything you would want to see in the future, like always. But until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly dose of Screaming Through the Ages.